the poet William Blake asked a very fundamental question of those who chose to read his work. Is it possible to see a world in a grain of sand? A world, not the world. There is a difference. Is there one world? And is the world that we see the only world there is? What are the different layers within that world that we are unfamiliar with? And what is the grain of sand? Can we identify that grain? Our guest today is Dr. Rakesh Bhattabayal, Associate Professor at the Jawaharlal Nehru University, who has written two outstanding books with a third forthcoming. The first was his PhD thesis where he looked at Naukali, the massacre there, within an understanding of power, of change, of the tapestry of human relationships. Many years later, he chose to write the chronicle of Jane, a labor of love. The Jawaharlal Nehru University was well known when he entered its ramparts in 1989. But it would be in the 1990s that he would come into his own, where he would move from being just a participant, a student of Jamie, to becoming a participant observer. And later in life, he chose to write the story of Jawaharlal Nehru University. Welcome to Baroque Conversations, the art and craft of public policy. Those statements of intent that have the power to inspire, to amplify some voices, as also to silence some others. A podcast amongst fellow travelers. This is a pause in the journey, a time to catch a breath, to reflect, to remember. Please welcome your host, Vijay Lakshmi Balakrishnan. Thank you. Good morning, Rakesh. This is a wonderful experience for me who has had the pleasure of reading your wonderful book on the Jawaharlal Nehru University, a university that I've often wished that I had joined in doing all that uh, different things that I've done in my life. Um, so just to get to get, give the readers a sense of, of this organization and perhaps this very important institution in India's history. You want to just walk us through what is JNU for those very few people who may not know what it is? Um, morning, uh, Vijayalakshmi and Arvind both. Vijayalakshmi, uh, it was nice. We'd like to thank you first to invite me for this program. And the second thing, inviting me for this program for a reason uh, to celebrate an institution uh, in terms of how historians look at it. And uh, third, uh, also when we celebrate something in India has been always a kind of you know society which celebrates and the celebration goes far and wide in order to inform uh, the coming generations and the children, the old, and they bring together in the process of this celebration to know about certain institutions, certain norms, rituals, whatever you have. In this sense, JNU uh, has been an institution which is not just for higher education, but for informing the, the 
people of this country their past and present and future heritage in the sense that it connects them so it would be in fact uh, very facile to tell me that this is just an educational institution that everybody knows that because the, uh, you don't attack an educational institution and the british government doesn't attack um, oxford for being oxford Uh, or it doesn't attack, uh, for example, uh, any other country. For example, Idi Amin destroyed um, uh, the very famous institute universities of Kampala. Or similarly, military establishment has destroyed many uh, universities. Uh, they don't for the, just being university as a center for learning, but something much more. They start identifying, signifying, personifying. No, they become a metaphor of something else. To me. to the audience therefore uh, i had a sense that this institution uh, is not just about uh, doing phd or mphil but it symbolizes something else and i felt that it symbolizes it has retained uh, indians um, the notion of their national movement so the basic ethos that was part of that national movement where they galvanize into what is called indian people and therefore jnu became a kind of you know a kind of metaphor for indian people and when an, an ideology or a force that comes and want to define that indian people into something else that you are this 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 and not that then this symbol of uh, the earlier version or the other version of indian people becomes a kind of inimical force therefore it needs to be destroyed it needs to be realigned to a new idea of indian people therefore to cut it short jnu as it came up in 60s um, the idea came up in the 60s and it 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 came to a fruition in the 70s and 80s it was a kind of embodiment of what was the desire and higher higher realm of aesthetic cultural desire of indian people during the national movement during the 1920s and 30s and 40s and what they wanted to become in the world they they wanted to have a place in the world in certain manner uh, and not in certain other manner so what were those manners they became crystallized by their intellectual endeavor which people from all parts of the country came they came here they took it back to their regions their state their cities and their small towns and mafasans whatever you have and therefore this is what to me was jain it was not a celebration the way people love either for or against they celebrate this you know winning over this place and destroying what you they call anti national something or the other section will say well, we have a great you know everything was hunky dory no as an institution as you know any institution it has its own pros and cons and politics and everything jnu is not out of uh, in a mars which was not inhabited it's inhabited by the same indians who have been destroying institutions left and right in every state so so jnu is not immune but the, to me as a historian i was trying to locate the deeper structures of uh, this institution what sustained it so far uh, and what also uh, were the reasons for its eventual change over to a new system were also located in the institution and the kind of symbolic uh, symbol that it had become so i stopped talking about this institution in the book in 1989 
for two reasons one uh, i became a student of this university so you know i my own location uh, has ceased to be non partisan post 89 so there i as a historian i'm sensitive to this and therefore i think a new method needs to be employed when i take on the post 89 history of this institution the second is 89 was also a kind of a kind of watershed event in indian politics because the first time a complete change of the politics was happening in the country and which was precursor to what happened after post 92 with the new economy new politics and the new rhetoric and a new generation coming and therefore jeno's location has to be we thought not in terms of memories and older histories but also how those memories and stories are realigned with a new economy and a new politics how does it and the regions were changing you know in india the states some states were moving fast some states were moving so if you see if if you align with a larger economic discussion you know till 90 till mid 60s for example 67 a new work on uh, a kind of longitudinal work on rural history of a place called palanpur the scholars have been studying that area in western up from 19 1950s or 60s and the recent work suggests that the economy of tamil nadu and uh, economy of up were almost the same until 1965 67 yes almost all indicators were the same and so therefore the the post 60s post 67 68 economies of states change keep changing the templates were changing the green revolution comes and change punjab from what it was from earlier part and it became different from bihar or it became different from rajasthan or similarly maharashtra becomes different from uh, say gujarat or gujarat becomes different tamil nadu becomes different from karnataka so all these regional differences emerge and they become very sharper in the 90s and you know, and so therefore they have a huge ramification for an institution which is a central institution which is located in jno and which was uh, using the feeders of the state a post graduate institution doesn't have its own feeder institution for example aligarh or banaras or any central university have their own undergraduate program where they, they those feed into the university's research program jno the feeder is all the state institution a, a college in tamil nadu a college in arunachal pradesh or a high school in so they feed into jno's um, system and jno then tries to feed back and therefore jno is the only institution which became a kind of you know stand alone in terms of whom it recruits therefore recent change into a centralized national testing authority will further destroy jno because uh, while it um, it was getting people from all the regions its examination system was also geared to this you know it was sensitive to the regional differences therefore in the interviews or in the way the questions were set you know there those sensitive those differences were fed into that's why it could bring in people from kerala Uh, recently one of the faculty recruitments you know the interviewers asked a candidate who was already teaching in jno that you can't speak in hindi so you are from kerala now this question 
we would have never asked when jain was formed or jain was functioning till 2016 nobody would ask his linguistic apart from being to become facilitate to facilitate a communication but what i was saying is that jainu because it was something else as i'm saying it was symbolizing the national how people became indian people in the same sense how jainu becomes an indian university in that sense it was indian and therefore if you want to change the meaning of india then you have to change jainu and then when to change that is a different processes involved so what kind of change if, if it becomes a hindi university uh, celebrating or valorizing or glorifying or prioritizing hindi as a national language then jainu's character would also change similarly if it becomes an extension of north indian university uh, it its character will change suppose it does not get the feeder from different states uh, as a, let me tell you gujarat uh, after 80s has a very tough post 70s i would say uh, very difficult to get the social science students and you know, higher education and all so jnu professor would see to it that people from gujarat come you know they would open up um, they will have you know channels of community somebody wants to do phd mphil so why don't you come to jnu you know this even icssr does you know because you know some states don't send their students so in order that notion of regional development which earlier the nehruvian version wanted to bring in equality of some sort with the colonial economy and administration actually has has created ruptures so that also brings in because unless regions are what is called the life blood of india because this india is in some sense a constructed idea an abstract idea i am i am indian but what am i i am also i bring the richness of being a bengali born in jharkhand so i bring the jharkhand regional then i was sensitive to the bihari jharkhand odisha all these identities somebody is tamil he brings his tamil the richness so the, if you have just indian then the richness becomes slightly shallow in some sense you know what is an indian so lot for example lot of diasporic people celebrate for being indian now the they in those countries they they adopt their primordial if you are a hindu or a tamil you do that but in india you are a tamil you are a bengali you also align it with a national grid you become sensitive to the other regional so you learn so many things in the process that national grid the biggest grid mill was the national movement where people came together from all walks of life they travel they become one you know they created for example uh, let me give an example very interesting example that you know for long time um, a, a large number of people from maharashtra would senior politician become governors in maharashtra in punjab no so there's a old history was playing out in maharashtra similarly you could see the way um, a punjab person was made governor of tamil nadu because in the opposition state you know and so and uh, so jit singh bandala was a governor he was so respected in tamil nadu so they so it's a kind of very interesting dynamic emerge with during the national movement the congress itself for example when it was founded in the national congress you know the first congress was in 
in West West India, that is Bombay, and the president of the Congress was W. C. Banerjee, who was from Calcutta. The second Congress happened in Calcutta, and the president of the other was Dada Bhai Noroji from West. The third Congress took place in Madras, and the president was from North India, West India, Madhuruddin Tayyabji. Similarly, every time the Congress would try to see that Congress is held in. one part of the country north west east whatever yeah and the president would come from the other side also the religious you see the first president of the congress was a christian wc banerjee was a christian where the second president of the congress was dada bhai noroji parsi the third president of the congress was badruddin tayyab ji a muslim and and fourth president of the congress was a christian uh, englishman and you so you see this is the way the idea of nation emerged and jain in some sense rakesh may just step in over here just one second uh, it's just to try and you know the three four strand which came out of your introduction and i wanted to pick up on all the three but perhaps in uh, some kind of a sequential form one of the things which, which uh, was very interesting for me was to see that uh, was what you what you shared that uh, uh you left the history at 1989 both for professional and also a larger political reason which is a uh, um, a reason which is that you yourself became a participant in the jain process in 89 and therefore found it very hard to keep that uh, distance that historical distance that you need to keep with your subject to maintain a certain level of uh, subject objectivity that you need to do your own professional work and the other one which was perhaps uh, more interesting is to see also that the larger forces of change which were both uh, economic as also political and religious all at the same time uh, were having their own set of uh, influences on the organization uh, so i would like to sort of pick up on that so let's start with the first what is it that makes rakesh a student in zavier in ranchi uh, want to reach out to jnu in delhi Well, um, you see, uh, Xavier. This is this is the beauty of um, Indian institution system, and this is I'm sad. We are in some sense shallowing out. You know, the Christian missionaries have played a enormously powerful role in terms of shaping uh, India's generally the middle level institutions. That is the college. In that sense, that they were the higher level institution, but also schools in many ways, and they. shaped the cultural mold in many parts most cities will say um, for example uh, uh, giving giving you an example that i share uh, the sensevius alumni network not from the one sensevius with uh, two different absolutely different people arun jetli was a sensevius school product and jyoti bosu was a sensevius college product so you can make distinctions and this distinction of complete and um, uh, advani mr um, uh, l k advani was the st patrick i think and uh, i uh, uh, brother school from karachi so you can see the jesuit the role of christian missionary i come from sanzevis college and uh, ranchi which was set up by the flemish flemish uh, french speaking or flemish speaking jesuits from belgium and hmm. i i may be the last of the generation where all my teachers in the college high school onwards were all flemish speaking belgian jesuits the dedication the the love for institution 
is not distance from love for people you may argue one may argue as uh, many of the political formations like rss have been campaigning against the jspx and on for being they are being they converting people there is one part but that has been going on for last 4 5 5 6 100 years okay the conversion part but you see the conversion is uh, we are all we come from different parts but the the thing that they strike you is their complete empathy sympathy and in fact going into people uh, people's lives so sensevius gave me a sense of an institution where you actually serve the larger people so so it gives a sense now what happens is uh, for some for other reasons these are also the centers of excellence in all regions so since this rachi was a center for excellence it was uh, nowadays a bad word has come in as an elite college i would say not a elite i would use the word center for excellence now excellence is not in terms of merit excellence in terms of uh, in my college 90% students in for example the faculty of arts from high school onwards would come from the first generation um, tribal literate population first generation literate and, and the institution made their life different you know after four five years five years when they come out somebody becomes a lower divisional clerk or somebody becomes an ias it's a, but there is a institutional bond now my influence therefore uh, the kind of in, uh, primary influence where this christian priest fathers and the kind of the dedication with which they taught us history economics and politics political science english literature now after the trend in the college was to go in for either management engineering and this is pre kota institution days you know pre 1880s and therefore sanjeevas rachi used to produce the largest number of iit uh, entry you know in every every batch we have 40 to 50 iit similarly medicine and and third was the management we did not have unlike bihar it was part of bihar but the cultural ethos were completely different very rarely you would find people going for ias and all because the administering administering and power was not the kernel kernel or cornerstone of our social world so management was a rural development and management these are two so i was coming from a industrial town i wanted to be in management in some sense when a vague sense but gradually moved to history because the teacher who taught us was a belgian priest as a phenomenal his work uh, my hindi teacher was a person called kamil bulke father kamil bulke till now is the biggest authority on ramcharitmanas and imagine you know 1950s phd from allahabad university and his dictionary hindi english dictionary is the most most read dictionary across the hindi and english world english hindi dictionary kamil bulke dictionary so he taught us and then father franklin taught us and father vantrai taught us his history in green history detail history that you know whether i have gone for management or gone for any other subject i would remain a historian in that sense then 84 attack took place the ntc riot and my city bokaro city where i grew up 
I had seen many of my friends' houses ransacked. You know, one of the friend's sister was raped, and she was left uh, naked on the the dead body of the lady was left on the street with that uh, Indian Indian flag hoisted on top of her body. So this has troubled us tremendously. So I I asked my teacher, I want to work on this communal violence. He said, then you must go to JNU. And there was a person called Vipin Chandra. He writes actually more sensibly on this. So this is my um, first, second year BA introduction to by a Jesuit priest who, uh, who was sensitive to uh, and he said, you go there, study history and come back and you teach in this college. And let me tell you, when I finished my MA, that that priest, that giant of a man, uh, died of a heart attack in 1990 uh, because of a funny reason. And the reason was that he had adopted an, an orphan. He found an orphan baby near, a boy near Ranchi, and uh, together with other fathers, he, he, they helped him grow up. And when he grew up, they posted him as the trusted man in a press run by the Catholic uh, mission. It's called Catholic Press. And the Catholic Press, which is close to our house and is college, used to publish the UPSC question paper. None of us ever knew. It was, its credibility was so high. And in 1989 and 90, the UPSC IAS question paper were leaked. And as a big scandal, somehow the CBI and others have found, um, I think it, it, it was, um, you know, in larger terms, it was suppressed. It did, did not become a big news. But, and this gentleman who was, whom they helped grow, was a person, and this shocked them, all the Jesuit fraternity, that their own people have betrayed and in such a manner. So he got a heart attack, was listening, hearing this. So my mentor, uh, Father Van Troy, who sent me to JNU, died of a cause of which we have become so immune today that you no know, leak of question paper, you no know, all these dishonesty. So this is how I landed in JNU to work on um, communalism. But communalism is the second part that I work. I did for my MPhil and PAT. So the Jesuit influence and the 84 riots, you know, and my own house, my own grandparents were refugees from Bangladesh and the locality which they, we grew up in Bukharos in the Nehruvian city of where have, we have no understanding of these narrow boundaries of Hindu, Muslim, Sikhs, you know, we were regions, all my neighbors were Telugus. No, it is. It's, it's. It was a cosmopolitan universe that in Indian nation wanted to be, and suddenly I was in this city, uh, Rachi, which was communally so sense, so polarized in the 80s. And no, this is a time when RSS was campaign campaigning for removing the Pope came in 83 in India. And I saw the polarization, that trying to polarize the city, uh, boycotting Pope. Uh, on the other hand, attacking the Jesuit missions. On the other hand, Hindu-Muslim um, sensitive riots during uh, Ram Naomi. So I grew up in it at a time. We didn't know that this was a time when 
Babri Masjid and Ram Nam, Ram Janamurumi debate was happening in such a fury. But we could, we knew the polarized society was emerging. And while Xavier's was giving us a kind of isolation, we, we were not familiar, uh, part of all these inside the campus. But outside world was changing. So therefore, when you become intellectually sensitive, you are trying to understand outside society, then you realize uh, that Indian society was getting communalized. You wanted to see the deeper roots of it. You wanted to explain it to yourself and to the world. And that, that made me come to change, to understand what is happening in a larger uh, intellectual form. The second, and I'll be very brief, is that all these teachers of mine, and we were not taught in just classrooms, we would interact hours after the classroom with these priests and evenings, and then in the vacations, uh, long discussions and chats and all. Um, also, these were all post-Second World World War uh, people who came to India in the 40s and 50s. Uh, they were all the uh, were educated during the liberal phase of uh, between the wars, and they were all they had all suffered the fascist. So they had a very liberal core of Europe, a very liberal. And we were in even today. I carry those. I'm mentally. Intellectually, I'm very European in that sense, in the sense of a larger, liberal, progressive world that will come. Whether that world exists or will exist, I don't know, but I carry him. Maybe I'm, that's why I never felt like going to the American universities or European because mentally we were trained in that manner. I carry their heritage in any sense. That's wonderful. It's a wonderful way to understand a person and uh, their influences on them and what shapes all of our mental models in, in so many ways and to be so aware of it. Most Indians, I think, are very unaware of what is it that shapes the way they think and how they think about the world uh, and what is it that triggers change. And you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what is it that's made you who you are. Uh, one of the things I did want to speak to you about was also the other thread, thread which I picked up while you were speaking earlier, which is the distinction which comes in when you become a participant in a historical process and at the same time you're also an observer of that process. And uh, how is that different? How do you negotiate that? Because a lot of your work and the work of Jane and most Jane Whites is to understand the world of India and what India is and what India can be. Uh, that is the largest social science inquiry. Um, so when you are involved in that and you are a participant very uh, clearly, at the same time, you're also an observer. So how then, how do you negotiate that? Okay. Uh, this is a fa fantastic question and it has, uh, I will, uh, I'm still struggling with it uh, in the sense, you see, um, it's historiographical, uh, one is historiographical and how I, as a historian, uh, how I negotiate with that historical and what kind of historical template in which I work. The second is how as a person, um, 
practicing history um, or writing history thinking in historical terms understand a location from where he or she works now uh, this does not in any way suggest that i subscribe to the value neutrality of social sciences that was an old idea you cannot be value neutral in many senses because uh, how can i be value neutral when i see uh, inequalities in terms of extreme inequalities in terms of poverty poor and rich how can i be value neutral in terms of when i see untouchability in the past and caste discrimination in the present how can i be value neutral so uh, and the second is uh, how can i be value neutral when i see suffering of different kind how can i be value neutral when i see domestic violence in yesterday's report suggests seven or eight states well domestic violence is increased by 30 to 40 percent karnataka no and in the pandemic i, I can see the the suffering of women inside homes have become almost unmeasurable now so paternity i'm not subscribing to that idea so therefore what am i suggesting in terms of my historical location and how i uh, view a person you see uh, one uh, issue that came up very sharply is uh, post holocaust uh, germany that is post 45 germany where when american forces in the west germany and uh, russian forces in the east germany try to cleanse the the nazi past of people and uh, how the local historians came to speak about you'll be surprised that uh, till 1980s when the 81 a big debate emerged uh, german historians are more or less in a way muted way even today you don't have that much of noise about holocaust and all from german historians as it is from the american and other historians and philosophers and all about so uh, something happens when you are there and something large thing had happened you are either participated or you don't know how to explain that because something in the in the society already going on so that is one position that you become you you, you don't know how to express or you, you don't want to express you no know, or or you see that you know like for example many many in india wanted to see a a a, a hindu a different hinduism coming in terms of not uh, um, um not to uh, antagonize take an antagonistic position to me uh, coming to jnu was also uh, a very significant way i brought my own world along with me i did not come i did not uh, leave that world behind i grew up in a what is called nehruvian city a steel city built by russians so influenced by russians we be grew up we used to speak russian when we were kids um russian films we watched we used to celebrate um, 
7th November, that is 25th October, in a big way in the stadium, October Revolution, and we used to get sweets. And therefore, we had a um, we had a different way of looking at Russia, Soviet Union, and all these things. My Russian teacher was a Kyrgyz, you know, um, lady. I didn't even knew that she was a Kyrgyz, and you all knew that she was a Russian or Soviet Union. Then neighbors were so neighbors were all from all all parts of the country. We never knew that when we are in some called something called Bihar city, we were on Bukhar. Then the Jesuit education. Then when I come to JNU, I felt that I was culturally a very impoverished land because you know a large number of people who I used to meet were from different semi big cities. You know, somebody from Dindigal, somebody from a large chunk from Bihar, UP, Rajasthan, and. Um, uh, many from non-descript colleges and the, dis- the big descript colleges from Presidency, Stephens and Loyola and MCC, they were also there. So this is the world where needed to negotiate. negotiate. And therefore what happens is people retain their own and this is beauty of India and of the kind that they were visualizing. So you remain an MCC alumni, you have an MCC network but you also create a JNU world in which you give something, it's kind of you know, Russo's uh, general will, you give something and you retain something and in my my growing up and my concern, I might have retained many more, for example, a very ethical core, and I did not surrender it to politics in that sense. So suppose politics, you have to surrender some part of your ethical core. You have to say some bit of lies in order to be in politics. Uh, whatever politics you do, you know, some bit of, and you have, uh, or something, some other things. So I remain, in some sense, a very, a very Jesuit trained student, a very high level of ethical core, from that I was weighing the politics. And in that sense, it could be that uh, my yardsticks become very, very higher for politics and I could not enter any politics in that sense. So, you keep, keep that, that also become part of your historiography, that you you can be a, 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 a kind of, you develop a kind of um, what Thomas Nagel, philosopher, wanted to say, uh, a view from nowhere, but you know that the view from nowhere doesn't exist. But you still try. And therefore, when I say that I became a participant, I am very became acutely aware that I work with certain professor. I have on communalism, I have certain viewpoints. And yet, I want to understand and understand those who subscribe to communism, those who, who are Hindu communal, Muslim communal, Sikh communal. I'm not, I'm not, uh, in order to understand them, I privilege and monopolize my own position so as to victimize all other positions. I want to understand them. Now, this was, in some sense, not allowed in the politics of JNU in some sense that you have to you have to condemn a kind of political position because you know that they were very dangerous which is true but my dilemma was that i want to understand them understand and then maybe as i'm saying renaissance man you know i want to i want to convert them convert them to a larger humane world now this is what i found would become problematic post 89 and therefore i need to look for a historiographical position uh, 
Rakesh, the Renaissance man. How does and you were talking to me about how politics and the understanding of politics uh, was influential in the way you negotiated with JNU. So explain to me what is it that it meant to be uh, to, uh, to bring your understanding of politics, your understanding of the world into JNU, which at that point was not just about uh, people from different parts of the country, but people who had very different ambitions and who saw JNU um, as in a very different way from what you saw. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Vidya, for leading me this, giving these lead questions. You see, uh, uh, one aspects of uh, India of 50s and 60s is not yet explored. People have not been able to uh, explain that. Uh, and I have been, this is my, I would say, ambition to, in fact, uh, not just ambition, my love for the country is that I want to study my next work would be on the steel cities and making of the country, uh, or public sector institutions, for example. Uh, Bukaro, where I grew up, and it was not, a f I wouldn't say that I got a very good education, so to say. But it was an education of a kind which very rarely, and you you have these people around the country who are the steel city product, you know, and if you meet them, they would have a different sense of the country. What we heard in the uh, from our childhood was, you know, the steel production, the blast furnace, and coal rolling mills, and you know, production of five million ton and ingot steels and peak irons. Everybody was. <coughs> making in a process of making and you have very direct connect with nation making process so steel making and everyone's father and mother and uncle and aunt and everyone was in the process of producing something you know, they were either so there was and you could see uh, many of your um, neighbors and you know, uncles they're all engineers and their wives could be completely illiterate you know they, because these are the first generation people who went to Russia because India had a human resource problem and they were trained you know, from IITs and big uh, first batch, first generation IIT graduates. They were sent to Russia, they came back. They were also from rural background or semi-urban background because urban um, India was not an urban India, it was a rural India from where the engineers came. Very fascinating. Now, you were very sensitive to all these and you still carry those things. That, you know, um, and in on the other side where the large unions, Intac and IUTC and uh, smaller unions, I left union and you, I, I grew up next to the ground where INTUC had its headquarters. So every second day there was a meeting and you would participate on the meeting either as a young boy your play was interrupted because you used to play hockey there and used to distribute sweets. Or even um, in the 70s, I remember we were given charge of the young boys of the locality, five pesa per coupon. We, we used to cut false membership cards for all parties. You know, it would, it would be ABBP or the false membership so that inflate the membership or NSUI and all these things. So you grew up with these two 
one is the trade union um, and they were fighting for labors you know and then and you were very conscious in the sense that a political uh, activist in jnu is consciously making those demands when i come to jnu i find that uh, one is the elite institutions so to say stephens presidency mcc uh, uh, there uh, it, it, it all it, these themes were either uh, very instrumental because they were uh, intellectually presidency mcc a lot of students who came were very uh, well trained in their own, but the idea of education was instrumental because they have to go to they go abroad or they have to go uh, right upsc and and then there was a second rung um, of students who were coming there that had to make up with their bad education uh, bad education in the sense you know they coming from a, a institution but not exposed to larger world didn't that there i saw i would say the disparity but i would see uh, myself being a very peculiarly displaced condition because many things i could not explain to others so you have to be a perpetually marginal man you know perpetually sitting on the margins and watching everyone because the steel plant background and complete immersion to that world uh, made you aware that you have to produce something and producing for the nation so everything has to have a connect with the nation making you have to have uh, a finished product at the end of it no because people were in the early morning you could see thousands of people cycling to the plant and one o'clock you see thousands of people coming out you know and then evening so everybody is engaged so you become disciplined without knowing what discipline means you're disciplined in the life and you're disciplined for a larger purpose and you're everyone i remember i was uh, it was may i think may a huge very hot summer bukaro is a very hot place and it was all open and it was the inauguration of the blast second or first blast furnace in 1974 indira gandhi was supposed to come and inaugurate and i was in my i was maybe 8 years or 7 years age um, and my young my two siblings they were all in their early toddler my mother was carrying my young youngest brother who may be 2 years old uh my sister younger sister was 3 years we were all there in that blast furnace ground in this hot summer waiting for indira gandhi to come and inaugurate the blast furnace imagine that is the world i come from and here in when i come to jnu i see people doing um, black uh, holding placard for making india all kind of politics it was very difficult to associate that kind of it takes time to associate because you want to do something you are already doing something mentally on top of it the layer of ethics that the jesuits have given me of a large humanity a large humanity that will live a ethical world was also a kind of super laid now these two helped me understand an institution from a different perspective than others for for most i would say for most even those who now talk about loving jnu and all jnu was like many people have treated india in the nation as a stepping stone for something for me it was not a stepping stone for something it was a world in which i have to uh, work for some of the larger universe uh, where i am a part 
I am active. I am con- every day in negotiation. I am converting people. I am trying to get converted to a larger ethical world. So that becomes a kind of sense that I got my, uh, from my association. I found initially I found people were uh, less cultured because coming from Sanjeevas, whenever I was playing rock and all these things, I feel there's not a single guitarist except the northeastern. <laughs> But that arrogance of culture gradually gets dissipated. But I retain those things, and it is some many a time, and which is my focus now. India is going through a phase where it is culturally become a wasteland, and that will hurt it very, very because there is no sense of a higher culture in terms of public culture, music. You know that's why uh, when T M Krishna and others intervene. I think that is the great. This is next next line of India's cultural uh, engagement that you have to bring people culturally upwards. So the valorization, for example, in the in the uh, university here, valorization of uh, say the regional songs, for example, Bhojpuri song during Holi and all by people from you know elites who coming from elite institution or suddenly left was promoting them, and those songs we always considered very. Vulgar in our back in Bihar, <laughs> so I could not negotiate with those things. Just for the sake of popularizing something, I I cannot uh, sacrifice some amount of my cultural understanding. So in these complex processes, uh, one realizes that one is a perpetual marginal. You know, you are always sitting at the margins and looking at things. Uh, initial idea that you are looking from a world. Uh, From nowhere, which Kantian world that you are, a bystander looking everyone. Gradually, the politics is changing. The Dalit intellectuals have sharpened it by saying you cannot look. You have a position. You are a perpetually Brahmin. Your pers your perspective is a Brahmin perspective. My perspective is a Dalit perspective. Your perspective is a caste perspective. You have to have an identity of your perspective, and they are alienated. Now, I do not even subscribe to that. So therefore, while I I realize the problems of a view from nowhere that you cannot have a view from nowhere, you have a view from somewhere. I never I negotiated, struggled even today when I'm speaking. I struggle not to sublimate or submerge my um, my autonomy of a viewpoint uh, to a complete identity of my. I growing up years is not I um, is not the identity. It gets It, it, it places you somewhere else, so I can view a Soviet Union very vividly from someone who just lives in Russia. I view steel cities, melting pot idea that all my neighbors were Telugus, all my classmates were Tamil and Malayalis and Bengalis and Biharis. How Jane gives me that, but in a different uh, um, uh, telos that they want to do something else. They go back now. Uh, also, in this, I sense, Megan, uh, in this segment, uh, a sense that by 80s and late 80s, when I started going back, I also saw the other development, which very few people are now articulated so far. But I need to articulate that. 
uh, is that by 80s I could see that Bukhara was becoming a Bihar city. It was becoming the the politics of Bihar is now politics of the city. Lalu Yadav was merging. You know, local politics is emerging first. The second is it was also the time when I see less number of Tamils and Telugus and Malayalis are coming to Bukhara. It has becoming more and more the sons of the soil are coming to the soil. This must, I have never understood at that point of time, the regional economics was changing. The migration was stopping. Uh, the Tamils were no longer migrating to the north. The Telugus were having their own um, economy emerging. So gradually, I re- remember when the when Bizak uh, Steel Plant was setting up, getting huh. setting uh, set up. The engineers were trained next to our house in the training center. So it was became it became a training center for Bizak Steel engineers. So one could sense that something else is happening, and uh, our world, the multi-port world is becoming a regional world or maybe a, a Bihar world. Now, now at a distance, I understand what was happening at that point of time. Now, the process from 80s must have gone unabated till 2020, where while a nation has emerged, but I don't think a national market has emerged. GST has brought a national market and many things have happened. So while people are celebrating in India, when the cricket match, people are talking about India. But I don't see Tamilians or Telugus in UP streets. I don't see a Marathi uh, as, a, as a manager of a bank in Bihar. Or um, regional uh, zonal centers of railways have increased. So I don't see... Um, a, a Tamil general manager of a Eastern India Railways. You know, so India in France has shrunk in terms of its human migrations. People are not melting in any way. The rate of industrial growth have actually declined. There is no new cities which have come up in the last 20, 30 years. As it came in the 50s, you had Dogapur, Bhilai, Raudkila, Bokaro, Vaisak, lot of uh, cities emerged. Dalmia Nagar, Rotas Nagar, and all these 340, 50, 60. Now, city. Rather, old cities have become bigger, which had a lot of migrants have come, and it is giving a new texture to those cities by having migrant labor. But uh, we, did, we didn't call them migrant in the 50s when people came to work in these cities. We didn't call them migrant. Like the Bukaru, Raukela, or Bhilai, you know, all these cities. Now, increasingly, these cities. Uh, reflected the regional uh, the, or the state economy and politics and society. The local politics have taken over. And when the local politics taken over, the local politics also meant the caste politics, the dominant caste and other caste. So this is a texture which I understood very intuitively and therefore I also, when I talked about JNU, I could sense this. To me, JNU was a liberation because I was relieving Bukaro, and at the same time, I was acutely aware that Bukaro has gone. That Bukaro is no longer. That that Rachi is no longer. 
and JNU was. And when JNU becomes an extension of the North Indian states, this is exactly what is happening today. There is one layer which is which is being Hinduized in terms of RSS and BJP is trying to uh, realign it to their own idea. But they they can do it only when you make it a Hindu JNU. They also have to bring in caste, and therefore what is you what you are witnessing is also JNU becoming an extension North Indian universities, UP, Bihar, uh, and what they have done to their university, it will soon happen to JNU. So this is a grind of the nation which is emerging, where I am looking at from my own experiences of nation making, uh, nation making in the sense of people melting and creating a universe in which I I try to realign or align my intellectual growth in terms of a larger human bonding of nations, beyond nations, beyond individuals. It's a larger ethical world in which people could have lived happily thereafter, which uh, you constantly try to find out how can we live together happily uh, in a much more humane way where a, where a disabled person has the same care and care and share of a person completely able. Similarly, how we can live a completely classless world, completely classless world. These are ideal worlds in which my historian self works. Historian, you are acutely aware of known ideal world. So these are, these are multiple stresses in which I thought uh, post-89 history writing on JNU would be different from my pre-89 JNU where I could I could I could create a past of a jail. I could I could see JNU being a foreign land where I have to investigate, uh, not imposing my understanding of changes that are happy happening post Yeah, okay, that's wonderful. Uh, it's uh, it also makes a lot more sense because somewhere one felt that uh, you know 89 was perhaps uh, if one was looking at it just as a history writing project without. Uh, in bringing in the personal element, one would not one would not perhaps have seen eighty nine as the uh, as a historical uh, juncture at which one would stop it. It would probably be slightly later or slightly earlier, uh, depending on uh, what aspect of JNU one wanted to highlight. Uh, but to what you share with me about uh, growing up in Bokaro and the understanding of India, which uh, living in a steel town, and, uh, which which was a manifestation of a particular understanding of India and the paths that India should take, uh, we also then understand where it is that we would be wanting to go. And from 89, clearly the world was a very different world that you were looking to go, become a part of and perhaps India was also looking to become a part of. Um, I wanted to just understand, but yet when I read your book, one of the things that comes out is that even when it was being set up, it wasn't as if it was very smooth. I mean, um, when people like me, we uh, think of JNU and think of Nehru, you think of him as a colossus, you know. Um, he was the man who could uh, turn water into milk. He could do anything. Um, and he had absolutely no opponents. Uh, and yet, his legacy was, and the idea of this university, naming it after him, 
all of that was uh, it was huge uh, it was a hugely contested legacy people were not in favor it was not a easy it was not an easy run to set up this university to give it the culture that that it does have yeah you see um nehru nehru as you will enter the next decade uh it will be further entrenched because nehru also on the body of nehru for example if nehru is a quintessential democrat a uh, democracy become the site kind of you know body you know uh, a site uh, as uh, many scholars like shantar mufez and you know laklaus and all are talking about the paradox of adorno europeans have seen it europeans europeans have seen because europeans are the best exponent of uh, their own experience because they have seen two world war they are called world wars but basically it is wars of Europe to Europe on Europeans. You know, they killed, they they dis, they got, they lost their three, four generation in those two world wars. So we we cannot have better educators on many things than the Europeans themselves. You know, they have experienced it. And for example, fascism, and we are entering in some sort of fascism in many sense. Uh, we're not destroyed by. a democracy but they destroyed by world wars there so no we, we are still very that's why very it's a very dangerous zone to take there's a right to take because you are destroyed only by violence if you have violence and gandhi is right if your means are violent you are destroyed by violence and the violence will cost us very very deeply in this sense therefore nehru was a democrat and as as i was mentioning democrats uh, the experience of democracy is that democracy also allows anti democratic forces to operate on the democratic plane and therefore if nehru is democrat nehru has to allow nehru had to allow non democratic forces for example he would listen to atal bihari vajpayee you know what was atal bihari vajpayee's foreign policy it was a right wing foreign policy in the 50s and 60s is to align itself with americans you know and aligning with americans in the 50s and 60s was to become its clientel state a client yes. state and all those states which aligned with america had been reduced to ashes in that sense because they were become client state and, and what the japanese japanese were not client state but japanese were occupied state in the 51 Finally, peace treaty gave them independence. But even today, Japan is what they call themselves. The scholars call themselves semi-sovereign state. Now, Nehru, would we just to, just to uh, bring this into the whole JNU focus? Then, do you see many of these ideas of uh, Nehru's understanding of demo- democracy, which also include included giving space to uh, forces that he completely disagreed? with you know fascist forces the right wing um who were not only a part of the parliament they were, they were inside uh, they were in his own cabinet the ministry cabinet and that's what i'm bringing in here because so what is this one uh, link so was that also then coded into the way jnu were thought of in the beginning yeah that's what i'm saying um, 
in fact uh, even if you see today jnu and jnu has been many many forums of jnu has been dismantled by um, not by outside forces outside ideology is there but people who are manning all these positions are jnu's own students so no, this is a paradox of democracy and in that sense nehru himself never wanted a monument on his name and yet um chagla who my resurrected from uh, from complete oblivion mc chagla he said no no it has to be named after chenu so now uh, people want to do enshrine democracy but democracy itself doesn't want to be enshrined because democracy is a running uh, process and in that sense uh, all inimical forces end up uh, attacking jenu but it is not about just nehru as you were mentioning it is not about nehru you see in 1960s uh, the idea of university was different from today's understanding of university in 1960s it is the regions which had centers for excellence which had grown during the colonial period and also in uh, in contrast to the colonial period universities have come up so a new central university of one standard could have um, Oh, it is such a flutter in some areas that is one this and in this sense for example uh, the um, if if banaras and others would have or calcutta or madras or delhi university itself the delhi university vice chancellor vkr viras who was helping opposing jnu no because he had he himself has been instrumental in creating delhi university as a first rate university many institutions so they don't want to have a rival and this was at a time when resources were less and therefore therefore knowing that in, if it comes in the name of nehru it will corner resources and that is a prejudice which i think is valid appearance the second apprehension was with the culturalist explanation of the north indian universities primarily rss they had they had there something visceral hatred for nehru from the beginning because nehru was in fact symbol of what they are not and what india should be or india is in that in that sense you know the modern the idea of a progressive the idea of a non-aligned country moving past confidently and in that reposter of the confidence of the people in him which the ideologically cultural left did not have it had it did not have people with it it did not have that kind of confidence to world uh, as a equal partner it wanted to have that's why this east west dichotomy sometimes plays negatively in the sense you wanted to have a place in the world by playing that you are different and you are indian you are eastern you are hindu no that does not give you equal world this gives you a different place and that different place may not be equal place it could be you know sometimes you treat a bigger as a different but give you an equal place <laughs> so in that sense nehru wanted to have an equal place in the world and in this therefore um, uh, jnu would demand that kind of an idea uh, which uh, many the culturalist opponent would not give the communist opposed it because they saw it as a kind of a kind of congress or a a a kind of uh, non communist uh, and communist particularly cpm was coming and communists were going through a split at that point of time 64 the split the cpm was very parochial even today cpm is more of a provincial party their ideas their vision is very provincial 
On the other hand, CPI was a nationalist party because it moved from the national movement. CPI, CPM, because it mobilized at the local level, so they have a very local, uh, and in that sense, uh, a central university was anathema to uh, forces which were much more provincial and regional. So they attacked it. Also, because this was a time when politics was in the sense of ideological polarization was very strong in terms of communist and non-communist, because communists also has suffered huge in the 62. Because all forces ganged up, and sure. just because Nehru was there, communists were were not uh, persecuted in, um, uh, in a much more sharper way. But there were thousands of communists were in jail because you know this idea of anti-national, which is now playing havoc, uh, was also played at that point of time. Lal Bahadur Shastri, the Home Minister was a known anti-communist in the sense that, you know, a lot of people were jailed, academics primarily, intellectuals were jailed, they were not allowed to enter into IAS and all, exactly the way uh, colonial government had done because, you know, the communists were arguing about the border clashes in China in a different fashion than what the national consensus was emerging as in India versus China. So all these were there and therefore they had a, they had a um, they had reservations and opposition to whatever uh, the Cong Congress was proposing as a Nehruvian university, a university Nehru's name. So all these were there, uh, detractors, and in, in in a democracy that was feasible. But uh, you could see this distraction, the, the detractors. Um, the biggest detractors were, however, the culturalist explanation. The argument, even today, if, if you see, the one of the uh, argument that was given by RSS member, that in the land of Ganga, Ganga and all, how can you have a uh, university devoted to science and global understanding? Because it is the it is a different culture. So university has to have a cultural explanation, which is now they are trying to do after for 40, 50 years. Uh, in that sense, even if you see. When Banaras comes up in the 1917-1819, the argument was not cultural. The argument was that we will do uh, what colonial government is not allowing us to do. We stride in the say uh, science and uh, that's why science and technology were the first departments which came up in Banaras. So yeah. even today we are trying to give a different expression of uh, Banaras. Banaras uh, Hindu University would be a different, a freer university. Uh, which, this, for example, in political science and history and economics, these uh, colonial universities, Madras and Bombay and Calcutta, were not allowing us to do. We will do it in Banaras. So, a huge number of good political scientists, good historians, they came to Banaras. In fact, in a, when Andhra University bill was being debated, one of the leaders um, from Odisha, he said, Madras University is a slaughterhouse of intelligence. You know, means because the official university were not allowing many things to be that exactly what is happening now. So in many sense, what the government today wants to do is the following the colonial model against which Banaras comes up, Mysore comes up. You know, and Banaras is a big icon of hope, beacon of hope for this. It is not on the cultural ground only that it's a Hindu university which is coming up. No, it was an university to give freedom to Indians in terms of their academic um, endeavors. So that's why IT came first. This is the only engineering college 
for a large number of people from Andhra, Hyderabad, Kerala, Tamil Nadu. Many poor people came, and that's why, uh, if you notice the uh, engineering and uh, medical, particularly engineering, uh, if you go to Banaras, you'll find a lot of Emily uh, tamarind trees. They're all planted by the Telugu and Tamil and Kannada professors and students who came here to eat uh, those food. You know, IT, therefore, Banaras IT got students from uh, Mangalore. In Karnataka, poor guys would come. One of the registrar, Mr. Bhatt, was from Mangalore. So this was a different India in which they wanted to go world, world leader in, say, technology, science. And in that sense, it was a uh, Banaras Hindu. Not in terms of they wanted to do astrology or something. No, in the, not in that sense. So in uh, when opposition comes to JNU, the cultural opposition, it was not in the spirit of Banaras University, but in the spirit of the Hindu communal forces, which saw everything that Nehru was doing was taking it further away from what they defined as cultural group. No, it was, Nehru was absolutely culturally a very refined person. And therefore, hmm. uh, it was a misnomer to um, uh, uh, construct Nehru as a uh, anti-Indian uh, sensible, uh, anti-Hindu sensibility person. So that, that, these are the, these are the uh, fine lines of those debates that you are mentioning. But the question which I, where I was coming from was not just within parliament, because in parliament certainly, you know, these debates from uh, the right and the left were very, very, very clear. But even in, in terms of the, uh, from within the, um, the fraternity, which perhaps would benefit the most from having this, were, there were disturbances. People were not comfortable with the original ambition of having a university within which the IIT would be uh, would become part of this university. This university would be the umbrella within which uh, other universities or institutions like the IIT Delhi or the others would get affiliated so this would become an umbrella university and yet yeah, they were right. they were uh, they were quite strong enough to ensure that that didn't happen you know, this, uh, this is a perennial problem, not just in India, it's across the world. And only capitalism is trying to solve that by this beautiful word that, word that they have coined, M and A. What is M and A? Merger and acquisition. No. Otherwise, it is difficult. In India, is a peculiar country where institutions don't die. You have hundreds and thousands of institutions which are in their terminal decline but they don't die they somehow carry on you know? it's good that some people some institutions die and the new things come up but they don't die in that sense uh, when JNU was you see the context when JNU was debated and the context when JNU came up is a very important context 64 to 69 or 65 60, 69 here this is a time when India now suddenly uh, uh, it was an absolutely resource crunch India. This absolute resource failed, failed India because India has seen 62 war, 
65 war 65 to 67 big drought in bihar and other areas 72 70 big drought in maharashtra uh, uh, withdrawal of a huge man um, in fact what they call leash india was a leash food sub, uh, food aid which was pl480 food aid was in fact not terminated but given in with such humiliating term every day for every day uh, by lyndon johnson in 67 68 so all these were happening so it was not difficult it was very very difficult to create a new institution with lot of resources and that's why the also it was delayed second the most important thing is and this is also the time when agriculture you see the last time when agriculture research was promoted is by the colonial government when lord curzon and others wanted to have this establishment called indian agriculture research system pusa pusa what you, in delhi you have pusa is basically pusa in bhagalpur in 1934 when the earthquake took place the building and everything was affected so they they transferred it to delhi that's why it's called pusa pusa road in delhi but basically it's a bhagalpur bihar now the structure of ic ar indian council for agriculture research remains what karjan had proposed at that point of time a absolutely centralized bureaucratic structure now after that lot many things had happened during the 50s when food nehru wanted to have agriculture universities but it did not fructify the way it it is later and in 1960s when indira gandhi and others wanted to have the agriculture revolution green revolution then they realized the importance of agricultural university now when jnu was set up this prominent this predominant idea had already come in that agriculture is very crucial and that's why agriculture in, in fact uh, was an area that thought jnu should have agriculture it would have been a fantastic idea because only in the national education policy in the last 10 years they are also trying to think how to connect agriculture because agriculture universities became isolated universities imagine in uh, when you go to tokyo university you know tokyo university began it which is one of the top most universities in the world and its rank is 2030 uh, if you go in the first center of tokyo university first department at tokyo university emerged from an agricultural university Yeah. Urbana Champagne has the best agriculture. No, across the world, some of the finest agricultural universities were part of a larger developed university system. The entire development of genetics, microbiology happens from agricultural practices. One is agriculture. Second is computer, computer and aeronautics have come in because this is an area. 60s was a huge jump in. Uh, American and Russian competition for science and technology, and particularly space technology, nuclear science and space technology, because Russia has sent Sputnik and. Sputnik up in 1957 with Yuri Gagarin becoming the hero for everyone, and the Americans would try to catch up, uh, and we were devastated that America, the socialists have sent the um, the thing up. But it is in this sense that Jain was conceptualized uh, in in a very vague terms that it will be a federating university for this 
एग्रीकल्चर मेडिकल एंड साइंस नो बाय दैट टाइम इफ यू सी द 19th सेंचुरी यूनिवर्सिटीज एंड इवन द 20th सेंचुरी यूनिवर्सिटी यू कैन नॉट कंसेप्टुअलाइज एन यूनिवर्सिटी विदाउट अ मेडिकल स्कूल विदाउट एन इंजीनियरिंग स्कूल विदाउट अ साइंस फैकल्टी विदाउट अ मैथमेटिक्स फैकल्टी सो दैट इज एन आईटी एंड इंडिया डिड नॉट हैव रिसोर्स एज आई मेंशंड टू हैव ऑल दीस डी नोवो फर्स्ट नॉट ओनली फाइनेंशियल रिसोर्सेज द वेरी पुअर ह्यूमन रिसोर्सेज यू कैन रीड द नंबर ऑफ ग्रेजुएट्स दैट यू हैव is abysmally low at that point of time we are better off than the african countries but we did not the first graduates if you see when nehru started the steel plants he did not have managers so anyone who came from oxford or um, cambridge or america with a ba degree with a ba degree they were all enrolled as managerial cadres so people who managed the steel plants in the first steel plants for example bhilai 50s durgapur uh, and all they were all graduates from oxford and cambridge they only because they knew the world at least they could converse with the world we did not have similarly iit system had not produced this cadre that they produced in the 70s and 80s the first iit in fact uh, khadakpur would send this first graduates only in the 50, late uh, mid 50s and late uh, late 50s 57 58 so we did not have manpower so therefore federating idea i thought was a tinobo idea for them they wanted to and aims had just come up 53 so it is just 20 years they could have brought in as a medical school of the university engineering school iit I, because iit delhi had not got the identity of an iit delhi by then because it was a kind of evolution of the delhi polytechnic into a larger university iit iit delhi is not in that sense the original iit system iit it is it is a kind of evolution of a techno technical institute into an iit that problem remains in them till very long so in that sense the clash uh, and on the other side once an institution takes place it, it develops its own life and they do not want to be part of any other institution this is a clash you are talking about and that is a clash everywhere i'll give you an example i uh, being an institution builder was offered to help taking over by jnu uh, of an institution called and is national institute of animal welfare which was created in 2002 3 with much of uh, much care and effort by the then the minister minka gandhi and others and which actually declined in terms of because you know, it is just a uh, it is just a ramshackle place now in near pallamgarh where some uh, tiny mini workshop happens by the ministry so in 2015 the both the minister minister environment and minister education signed a memorandum to give this institution to jnu where i was asked by the vice chancellor to facilitate the entire process and you know take over and we developed the curriculum everything was developed but it was so difficult finally it did not happen it is a small tiny institution imagine bringing iits and ii um, medical institution and, and agricultural university together inside a federating university would have taken lot of lot of effort to uh, bring people and even if they come uh, it is not that easy in india uh, to merge them in a common working place for example uh, two institution came to jnu which existed before jnu the the institution which was longer had a longer life before jnu 
even today creates uh, created uh, creates such an anomaly in the within the institution in the larger academic world uh, that uh, is not easy to bridge this gap for example international studies school of international studies while that school gives in genu uh, its international uh, aura it also drags drags many other departments into doing their own job in a much more global manner for example uh, history department is in, it doesn't do any work on say africa or uh, europe which a harvard university's history department would be doing uh, history of all other countries in the world india has not produced a good historian of afghanistan or a good historian of romania which i myself do a good historian of uh, janjibar why if you are a global power you should be working on all other history but because not just because jnu historians are incompetent or history department could not have done but because there is a school of international uh, studies which monopolize working on different other countries which ugc since 1960s because of lack of resources also prioritize to do this research you created area studies program <laughs> see sure. so these are the problem you know of institution which are so sis gets all this uh, whatever funding limited funding government of india does and now they do not develop historical tools they, do, they would not develop historical competence historical competence they would not, they would do in no one of their agenda is limited see in that sense academically you lose academically you lose so these are the problems of institutional thinking in india which i think only capitalism is trying to solve we did not create very innovative ideas how to solve them we created good departments as american universities helped setting up kanpur to set up good humanities department we see some of the finest departments of humanities research is in the engineering in universities like mit yes. so why could not we develop we developed in kanpur but gradually the way things because you if from the top you give a signal that we are creating a technocratic society so you you did that signal in the and now this is so pronounced and you dumb down social science and humanity you depress them by many means now it's a politically you are depressing them so as it happens your engineering your agriculture suppose you have an agriculture university which is a fascinating department with political science and economics and history you know the agricultural research would have gone so high so high it is not just about your researching on photosynthesis but your agriculture is so closely connected with your economics your politics today's farmer politics would have been debated within the agricultural universities campus so you could know what kind of seeds to not just mechanically developing some seeds but you knew how to link align it with agroclimatic zones zones you know all other things similarly veterinary college why can't a jnu has a veterinary institution that align we need because your 90% of your scientific research today is on biological science and you cannot think of biological science if you don't think of animals and a human relationship and the evolution there and all most of the good research now if you don't have those institution your scientists will go out and do work and these are very perfunctory work your correct broader connection is not there if you don't have a medical school how does your biological scientist jnu has out of five 
science school four and half would are doing biological science related subject now you don't have a medical school so you, your collaboration is just external not internally you're developing something so in that hmm. sense what the question they pose the detractions were there very demo but in india that time it was a detraction because it was institutional how do i merge institution in a federating body but today the issue is no longer that it issue was that indian and indians did not develop an institutional thinking because i think somewhere the caste that it is mine and therefore you had developed and there the sense of hierarchies you have developed because if you merge your institution in somebody else you lose your domain of rule a kind of feudal feudal sensibilities that i am the head i am this you know i have an identity and these you don't want to sacrifice this with this and this is this is the reason the bureaucracy doesn't want to surrender political doesn't want to surrender for that larger good you have done you have not dictated we have not able to evolve a notion of higher interest in terms of higher interest is always in terms of nation but that is that that serve for some time on the other hand this lack of institutional thinking in terms of um, non capitalist thinking so to say has a drag or csir have 400 plus institution and people do not don't even know they do a kind of administratively dictated research now and this is much more worse in today's terms when covid and other things have come uh, universities have no link they have different domain universities have no no domain agriculture universities have no domain so they institutionally we have not thought in term capitalism in other countries when you have merger and acquisition they are doing many things of this kind we have therefore uh, in fact if we develop that it's fine otherwise when jane was developing they thought about it and it would have been better even today when jnu has federated lot of defense research institution it is very perfunctory they just get the degree of jnu and jnu professor but most of the time what the jnu professors or historians or all would ask them to do they would not dictate because you have prioritizing military as a sort of holy cow so they would not develop uh, all those institution on the other hand you have developed these autonomous institutions of research of the army navy another thing this is further fragmented your research uh, scenario rather than making them part of larger university things hmm so that's wonderful to hear that uh, can i just ask you to just move back into your book a little bit and to help us to understand uh, that once the university had been established uh, it was very quickly and uh, from the outside you know just reading your book and being a part of that world that jane was jane it was a very rapid rise to the top it became the university to be uh, to be a part of for anyone who was growing up like you and I in the 70s and 80s that was the place to be how how did that happen because if you really look at it it takes a university takes many years to establish itself like any educational institution yet jnu it just sort of appeared and it seemed like in the flash in the flash of a few years it was it became 
the place that every everyone who graduated aspired to be a part of how what what was it in the mix of jnu which made that happen and one of the things which i did not pick up in your book and this may be just because i didn't read it carefully enough um was the role that jnu played in and the students of jnu more than even the faculty um in leading and being a part of uh, the anti emergency protest how much of that played a role in establishing jnu as the place not just for protest but for thought for critical thinking for imagination for visualizing a very different world that we all could be a part of yeah you see uh, let me start from the end you see anti emergency protest were done more in patna university and delhi university than in jnu yeah. so uh, that could not be a litmus test hmm. uh, and um, post emergency patna university is just collapsed right it the decline and patna university which was a premier university even today some of your finest scholars of history and you know economics and political science many science science where from patna university and emergency and the emergency agitations have seen patna university and in fact mat- massive flow of students uh, from bihar began with the dis- decline of patna university the post emergency and emergency period to banaras oh. first and then to jnu and delhi university so delhi university what they call as biharization of delhi university began with the, the decline of um, uh, patna university so therefore protest against emergency does not necessarily guarantee the university's health <laughs> so that one uh, there is a there is a trend in valorizing emergency protest in jnu but i think let me uh, minimize that valorization uh, uh, what your question pertains to is a historical moment of jnu recently there was an article saying jnu profited from the de- de- decline of uh, regional universities in the 70s and jnu professor became arrogant uh, and that is the reason for jnu's decline now uh, when jnu is attacked nobody is coming to defend what that argument does not tell you is why the regional university declined first first place and this is my, my comment on that they did not decline because jnu professors became arrogant and not uh, arrogant and haughty in comparison to the regional professors and all that is not an explanation this is a very very poor um, intellectual connect um, the first question now jnu's prominence that you talked about is uh, one is for twitters and one is historical for twitters in the sense it was just there at that moment when jnu was conceived and coming up that uh, regional centers of excellence were heard in a very massive manner no the top 5 6 universities no as i say excellence in india is in regions no don't destroy region uh, historically um, now osmania was the first one of the top most university rajasthan was the top most university calcutta was a top most not no top most university vishwabharati is a top most university within from 51 to 60 it has emerged as a 
PhD in major university in philosophy, history, you know, uh, Chinese studies, Burmese studies. Similarly, uh, Madras University is a topmost university. Now, uh, Kerala, Kerala University, fascinating. The university presses were working, books were coming. Jadapur was just coming up. Engineering, it was excelling. Now, it is between 66, 65 and 70. The destruction, I would say destruction, destruction of this university was so fast and rapid that uh, regions, regional centers of excellence and regional, regional higher education centers and people who were going to those centers migrated to JNU, both teachers and students. Reasons for regional declines were very various. In Rajasthan, it was a language movement which destroyed Jaipur University, Rajasthan University. In Calcutta, it is a Naxalite movement which and which forced students to migrate. The parents sent, sent them to JNU and professors of eminence to migrate. Like today, for example, many JNU faculty wanted wants to want to migrate to any good institution possible. So that's why all the private university that are coming up, you can see if they allow some space, space it is the JNU teacher students are joining them in hoods you know, as a teacher. Yeah. But Osmania, you know, the finest some of the finest teachers at JNU got were from Osmania. Similarly, those who would have gone to Osmania came to Jane. No, Sitaram Yachuris and all, they would have prospered in Osmania University. No, but they came to Jane. Teachers like Rashiduddin Khan, Kesey Shadri and many more came to Jane. So, Calcutta University, some of the finest teachers who had already made their names, uh, for example, Tapas Majumdar in education uh, and uh, Shibatosh Mukherjee in uh, life sciences who set up the life science department. Uh, Anjali Mukherjee's wife who set up uh, and set up environmental science. Many, many more. Oh, and, uh, younger, they all come. So Jane became, in that sense, historically fortuitous of receiving these teachers and Delhi University, Rumila Thapan came, Bipin um, Chandra came, no, and Satish Chandra came from Rajasthan. Rajasthan University gave a hordes of teachers, you know, every department, if you see the sociology was set up by Juginder Singh, who had earlier set up Jodhpur University and came from Rajasthan. And Life Sciences, the cancer center was set up by PNC Vasta, who set up the first cancer lab in Rajasthan, Jaipur University. Medieval studies in set up by Satish Chandra, who came from the Rajasthan University. Economics, you had so many people from Rajasthan University. Bhalla, Professor G.S. Bhalla came from Rajasthan University. Uh, in fact, in SIS, for example, S.D. Muni came from Rajasthan University. K.P. Mishra, K.P. Satana, so many people, you know. The JNU become a tribute. Uh, in fact, the, this, this seasoned teachers gave Jainu the foundation of good teaching. And that part is not noticed by anyone. In fact, the Hindutva forces don't even talk about it. The Jainu produce of some of the finest teacher, the classroom teaching, teaching is the fundamental in Jainu. So that is one. The second is from the regions, because the institution had this rapid 
um, in fact, uh, intervention, decline, and some in some sense destruction. The students who were who would have prospered in those institutions and helped them prosper, they also came to Jesus. The third is um, from all. This is a time of ferment, post '68 student movement across the world. You know, Vietnam, American University. So there is a ferment of student protest and, and the, a kind of lethargic. Gradually, the colonial aura and the semi-state kind of social science humanities was already in was a passe. International relation was in a passe. That old old paradigms were not running, and you could see them not running. And this is the time when you had already set up the institution, the Institute of Technologies, in a big way. But they were denied the technical know-how from the West, so they were also languishing in some sense. This is a time when you had a couple of good centers for social science coming up in jail. So many students who were studying in uh, Oxford and Cambridge and other institutions also landed up. And many students who would have gone there from Stephens and presidencies and uh, Loyalas and Patna College, they would have anyway gone abroad and done very well. They came to JNU as students and immediately these are the section which became the first generation faculty of JNU who are also students. So they gave a confidence and that confidence still is oozed when I am speaking. I, they never felt inferior or second grade to a yes. foreign university on Harvard. And that is the confidence. Best teachers and best students who would have gone. This is a misnomer that they said it's a poor, poor university and all these things. No, it is that confidence with which they started making theories, contesting argument, and refused to be a client university, which the decent postmodern scholarship has try to make in JNU. Many of JNU professors also contributed in doing that, that your eyes are always in the West. But the first generation students, the first generation teachers and the students and teacher interaction, they try to develop India with a typical Nehruvian, in, I would say Nehruvian fashion, that we are also, we can also do theory, we can, we can, we have the empirical fact and we are close to the society because we can do much more. So this gave this confidence actually gave uh, a much many people from the regions states and other places and political parties and all everyone they thought this is the happening place like today's young boy they think the malls are the happening place this became the happening place it became a kind of mall of that time and therefore those who were teaching in Mumbai those who were teaching in uh, Gujarat in fact their own they could not debate many things in their own faculty because this is also the time of caste movement and language movement they found they were not teaching in JNU but they found JNU the hospitable place AR Desai would come to JNU to give seminars so JNU also became the place for doing you know intellectual camaraderie the third all those researchers because JNU was developing as a postgraduate research area books and articles and the research journals 
many researchers who were working even in banaras and other universities those who had already established postgraduate but those there is a decline of because of this interact jain was in fact in the front ranking postgraduate universities and connecting and developing they would come to do research in jnu and jnu's guest house in gomti guest house in uh, cp and internal guest house and also people would were hospitable so this researcher from different universities professors and all they also came to jnu so jnu is ceased to be just an education institution granting degree but it became a meeting point at this juncture where regional regional universities were suddenly finding themselves at a at a crossroads some were declining some were not declining but you know that that dynamism was not there and third lot of things were happening internationally where jnu itself become a, a place a hosting place and that is that explain the 70s you know sometime the 90s and 80s were not what the 70s was that five six years actually gave a, a kind of new you know the, the idea of freedom for example today the tragedy was people coming from small cities and even big cities and colleges which were which does not have anything worthwhile to talk about as an education institution they are coming to jnu thinking that the freedom is this no that's what a lot of people talk about a misuse of freedom but the idea of freedom that jnu developed in the early 70s the first two three batches is what was the idea of freedom that was practiced across the world at that moment of time so india immediately jnu become a non client university non secondary university that's said it has its original um, uh, statement and that is still being practiced in many sense but sometime in a in a very de- in a very uh, decadent fashion in the sense you know you you use that freedom to do something which you know uh, you should not be doing you know for example if you if you the, the path of uh, walking for disabled person you drive your bike and nobody can tell you anything because you have the freedom uh, that is that was not the case of 1970s freedom so emergency was just one thing they protested and all this thing and they were arrested but that was done in many other universities in what they have done the students and teachers have done more in many other universities than jnu but jnu was this is what catapulted jnu to become the first university in that sense stimulating conversation with dr rakesh batabayal uh, the author and of the wonderful uh jnu making of a university uh and clearly a chronicler of that university and also of higher education in india uh welcome back rakesh thank you vijay uh this morning what we will do is we will continue with our conversation but perhaps we we will take up not so much about the book but also about your life as a student and now as a member of the faculty an institution builder who is able to see the evolution of the university in a very different uh, in perhaps a different way from being a historian uh, would it would it be possible for you to just share with us how it is that it has changed for you as a as a person the journey that you have lived through okay 
Good morning, uh, Vijay, again for um, thanks for inviting me for this uh, sessions with you. Uh, yesterday we discussed um, the, the way uh, my own evolution helped me understand the evolution of an institution. In that sense, um, your question just now is also posing the same question in, in much more um, much more contemporary ways in the sense what happened how I saw uh, I, how I um, in fact um, pose a problem of evolution of an institution or rather uh, changes that happen or taking place within the institution. You see, uh, as I said earlier, my location, I gradually understood, uh, has been so ingrained with within the within the kind of uh, um, evolution of multiple couple of different societies uh, in a steel city where part of the growth of the nation, a, multi, a completely cosmopolitan and Indian national. On the other hand, my father, my family was also very much entrenched into the tribal heartland. My own ancestral village has been so interior that even today it takes a lot of time reaching there. It's a very deep inside the Munda village where Birsa Munda has come. My so uh, and these are the only non-tribal families, but you cannot distinguish between the non-tribal and tribal because they are all what it be. What I, my wife, when first time she went, she says Mundaized family. You know, even the food habits and all. So uh, and these are some of the families which I don't know how they migrated this part of the interior Jharkhand jungles. Yeah. from their abode in uh, initially Eastern Bengal and then Nadiva Navadweep, which was a center for Sanskrit learning. Yeah. So yeah. My, gra my grandfather was a Vedic uh, scholar, but as a peasant come Vedic scholar, you know, they would do farming in this land. And he was uh, in some sense the guru, he was brought as a guru for the tribal chiefs, which, who gradually, as we know, anthropologically, historically, uh, tried to Sanskritize and you know, uh, have a state formation in the 19th century, early huh. early 19th century, late. So they become a guru of these Sanskritizing tribal chiefs who gradually talk themselves as Rajputs. And, and these areas were gradually in the late 19th century and early 20th century also became the mining areas of Bihar. Uh, and these tribal chiefs became also a kind of uh, landlords of those mining areas, Katras, Jharia, all these, and then the Tata area. And then it reaches up to Sarai Kelao. So it's a very interesting, um, and I didn't understand all these, and I understood all these later. So in one sense, one understands one's location in a completely different uh, um, situation than most of my colleagues in JNU when I, as a student or teacher, was one, one understood India from a completely different angle. Second, once uh, in JNU, uh, within uh, within all a year and a half, we faced a couple of situations. One, the greatest one of Mandal Commission and the kind of polarization it happened uh, within the campus, within Delhi, within the middle class uh, student and uh, families. 
and that uh, confused you because you knew that uh, reservation is, uh, is, is is so essential because you came from an institution where almost 90% people came since I was 90% students came with an affirmative action by the church, by the institution and by the state. So you knew that reservation played such an important role in upbringing of huge amount of people, uplifting them, making them available to the larger society in a much more valued term than just being a wage, unskilled laborers that today Jharkhand and other Bihar sends across the country. So you knew this at the same time, you also understood the politics of it, the way it was done and how it would permanently invalidate some of the gains of the national movement where there was an overarching over consensus that this was necessary. The reservation and affirmative action by the state was necessary for larger social good. But this kind of politics, the way it was brought in in 1989-90, uh, one also realized that this would I want to see from the conversation around that now uh, hardening of stances, which has become so hardened today yeah. that uh, a middle-class household of, say, those who are well-off or upper caste and all, you, it is so difficult to defend uh, reservation except if you can just shout them down. So this hardening of stand, I one could see in uh, the Mandal Commission agitation, and one was confused because one, one, uh, there was for, for person like me, there was no yes or no on this or that, but it's a larger. Uh, so this is one, and then one reached uh, after graduation, one reached. Uh, Shimla Institute of Advanced Study where you met people scholars from other universities in large number and you realize the kind of antipathy towards JNU a kind of uh, partly it was envious partly it was um, uh, the old uh, because these all these people whom I met there are ex-vice chancellor ex-this, ex-this, ex-professors so they their own intellectual growth and administrative and academic was uh, happening at the time and Jane was founding. So they had a different story to sell and it's very difficult to find a, 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 a comforting soul for Jane because everyone was so anti and you spent three years there and uh, every moment you felt like defending Jane. So one defended Jane in a situation where everyone was for one reason or the other was so anti uh, and gradually you made peace with them intellectually, not by compromising your own stances, but understanding why they are on this uh, line. And therefore, one understood Jainu from others' eye, from others' eyes, others' perspective. This is the first lesson that one learned uh, in, in personally, intellectually, and academically. Then I, again, there was an accident that I was brought in. I was um, but first job happened not just in academia where I used to go to the class and teach students history but rather I was uh, brought in to administer and coordinate the academic programs from academic staff college which I never heard of uh, in my life hmm. so it was a training ground uh, place where teachers from across the country would come and have one month's training um, and when I was brought in I was asked since I was talking about the institution, why don't I, why didn't I contribute here? And here every month, and we raise the intake, and I actually well 
completely into it, changing the academic tone, tenor. And my diff- my brief brief to myself was that I would rather than talking about alternate education, I would try to strengthen the mainstream, whatever is there. Let's find. And there I I encountered a different world. Teachers from small small area. And after my joining, I I did lot of handwork and in, interacted with people from different parts. And ask them to send their teachers and scholars and all. So gradually, academic staff college was became a kind of became a kind of entry point of large number of teachers from across the country, from small small towns, mafasils, district town, small, almost like a village. People came also from people from Stephens and Kashmir's and state by state, Kashmir, Mizoram, Nagaland. So one in 15 years that I was there, I met and it was a personal day-to-day affair. Uh, you and teach, you sat with them, discuss their teaching issues, academic issues, personal issues. And I, Dr. Rakesh, my name was Dr. Rakesh, became a kind of you know, first entry point to academic for many of them. They were just part of masters and joined lecturership in as far distant colleges like Avantipura in Kashmir or you know, Gulmarg or Badgaon or Mirmon in Nagaland or Jowai in Shilmir in Meghalaya, anywhere in Tiruvananthapura. So that also gave me a sense of what they look towards to JNU for. So this is another larger understanding. So my when I wrote the book, it was these two experiences at a very higher echelon at the academic institute of advanced studies, where people who were contemporary of people who set up JNU or became departmental heads and professors and all, their contemporaries' understanding of JNU, maybe at most most of the time from a very antagonistic, negative point of view, and their assessment about JNU's contribution and non-contribution, as you know, in Delhi University, a phrase goes that JNU is a white elephant. A lot of resources doesn't come through. On yes. the other hand, and I also understood the the, the way regional centers of excellence, as I was talk, as I was talking about last time, you know, Allahabad, Gorakhpur, Vishwabharati, how they cope with uh, an university like JNU, which was uh, hogging a big limelight because of its students, and because of its teachers, because of its own location in the city, because of its some of the schools which are just Hindu schools in the country, like a school of international studies or foreign languages. On the other side, these teachers, just lecturers uh, from different parts of the country. And the third element that I, 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 I won't say encounter, but I also was facilitating, bringing to academic staff college as a speaker, as a participant, are teachers, scholars, experts, uh, best intellectuals of any kind, left, right, center, who has something contributed something to contribute to the ongoing discussion uh, where as a speaker of different yeah. programs and that also gave me a sense of not just sense a very entrenched understanding of uh, teaching and learning that is going on and the kind of uh, styles kind of demeanor kind of uh, arms kind of uh, angularities kind of everything you know, somebody would be arrogant, somebody would be completely friendly, somebody would be committed, somebody would be uh, not prepared. So all these together 
so altogether say i met around 15 to 16000 teachers intellectuals scholars of all kinds uh, across those who were coming to speak and those who were coming to listen this also gave me an understanding of jain from vantage point which is completely different from uh, jainus from within you no know, we're talking about jain so if you see this book is an is a very interesting uh, this book is, in fact would have been written in three four volumes the way every yes. discipline has been narrated but in a short way but if suppose i speak uh, next month i will i'll be speaking to a conference on the biologies how uh, jainu become a center a hub of biological science not by accident but it's a natural evolution of the way bi- biological studies emerge in the 1930s and 40s in india and gradually a lot of these streams veered around and found nurturing grounds in jain and they who nurtured them after a point these these nurtured people needed new institution because jainu cannot give jobs to everyone or can help their evolution so those who went abroad that's a different ball game but those who stayed they needed new institution so jainu became a catalyst for new institutions to come up for example national institute of plant genome research within jainu three four new schools emerged or were created precisely because these people took initiative to start a project the project became a center center became a school now <laughs> you see so this is how if you see in the whole uh, world uh, delhi's uh, south delhi may be one of the biggest hub of biological sciences so this is how i understood jainu and uh, merely by reading primary uh, sources by through the life experiences of these and in in but unfortunately what happened while some people took advantage of uh, advantage in fact they asked me help and not even now people ask me help if they need a speaker somewhere you know who is the best person but institutionally no institution took advantage of this experience of mine you see nobody was asking even jnu admission branch was not asking me where to send their advertisement you know because this is the teachers who are coming from small small towns they don't hardly get to know about even in delhi people don't know about the jnu has a good, had a good science department so this was it was a revelation of thought while interacting with teachers but i was catalyst for at least 60 to 70 phd's where people came from one area and they were working with this and not finding anything so i said i said change your supervisor i interact i got them interact with one of the best persons in these institution or institution where they are coming from i said this person is a good person on this subject they don't know okay so hmm. Hmm. this kind of intellectual centers while one help come bringing up also was uh, shaping up my own understanding of india's education and in fact unfortunately uh, the one of the greatest ails that indian uh, education or institutional education but i i would presume that it is in other sectors also we are job driven rather than um, personality person driven that you know some person has expertise why don't we use that nobody even today had ever asked me in fact uh, the success of jnu academic staff college became so envious that there was all the effort by gc and others to suppress it and i think the whole experiment has gone completely awry now because of this other things happening now across the country okay so that's a wonderful place to uh, intervene and ask you uh, you saw the staff college as a way for people to in, to 
see JNU in the way it was first thought of, as you uh, recount in your book, where MC Chagla and a whole lot of others uh, supporting him uh, had thought of as a hub and spoke kind of understanding of higher education, uh, and where it was not disciplinary in a very traditional academic sense, but very multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, uh, which is perhaps why even today. Uh, while JNU is known for uh, uh, is known within some circles uh, for for its social scientists um, for India it's actually the home of the maximum number of patents are uh, held by JNU professors and students this is something that very few people seem to know about and yet what you're now narrating is the fact that at some point this has, this has started dissipating this has started changing. Yeah. But, you see, uh, sometimes you are ahead of time. Sometimes time uh, succeeds you. Time, time is so fast that you cannot catch up. Uh, I think uh, there is some warping up. Time warping up was happening. Uh, and this is where the first generation scholars and professors or teachers in JNU uh, had a very important role uh, because they were they were privy to the changes taking place where they came from either Hyderabad or Jaipur and all and they were st- grappling with those problems and these were all for problems of politics, society, culture and they were trying to bring out um, their own academic uh, solution and that's why they were politically also very important people not because they were in politics but they were grappling with real problems and coming out with a kind of perspective on which those problems could be discussed whether it is in Marx, from a Marxist perspective non-Marxist you know the first critique of orthodox Marxism uh, came from JNU's uh, Professor Bipan Chandra when he wrote the famous article called Total Rectification Similarly, his article on critique of the uh, orthodox communist position of uh, Indian capitalists being the comprador in 1973-74. So, a lot of things were happening. Similarly, they critique uh, the established Marxist scholars' critique of Naxal, the Naxal uh, the perspective was also voiced very strongly by Jain. JNU professor, while they were they were they were sympathizer heroes among the students and all, but from the teachers, those who are very well um, entrenched in Marxist and world politics, they brought out their understanding that this is uh, there may be fallacies of their understanding Indian state, Indian society, and the way to go forward. So, in this sense, they understood the time, the society, and the way forward. By 90s, I think. Uh, 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 while uh, while I have the sense, uh, I have not uh, sat down and pen pen them, but I have a sense that uh, the, the there is a kind of uh, uh, there's a kind of uh, one-sided understanding of Indian society, uh, and uh, I, I think here uh, there gradual sublimation to the global academic and this is a very because this is the time when neoliberals and the Indian state itself in some sense and the right wing there's a coming of the neoliberal scholarship institutions uh, the media was playing havoc and there is a gradual attack on JNU so JNU in some sense 
uh, academia was becoming slightly defensive on the one hand, but on the other hand, students and some section became uh, a kind of um, ra radical positions. And this is the time when radical positions were getting articulated through identity situation. Caste became one. Uh, caste uh, and therefore the Dalit politics and the the and Dalit politics and uh, OBC politics and all these politics what were happening in India was now getting reflected in JNU. Now the, the effort should have been uh, to grapple with with a complete intellectual dishonor, uh, intellectual honesty and scholarship perspective. But uh, what Jinu was in fact uh, not able to do was uh, to uh, evolve a new kind of politics. They were talking about um, pro-poor, pro-this, pro-that. But uh, I think it was being led by what was happening outside rather than leading. Uh, though we talk about JNU and become very common now, the JNU is a poor people's university. And, but these were actually a kind of sense of defeat um, because you don't call it university, poor people's university. Poor can come and study, but the university has to be excellent. Okay, so, so that is what I'm giving away uh, by saying that it's a poor people because now uh, the hegemony, the capitalist hegemony is becoming so complete across even the poor want to send their children to private university i don't know all these um, so coming to a public university also meant for many that you don't have resources to send them to private university this is the kind of perception being developed over the years and this particular last two decades and so entrenched there i think uh, jehu was meandering uh, and because uh, also because a kind of non-representative politics was taking help, extreme radical voices on all sides, caste, community, and this is the time when ABBP became a big source, and, um, you have um, very radical left positions, even communal positions, um, for example, Islamic student organizations or a strange kind of organization, Brahmin Sabha and Kaista Sabhas and all these things. So identity takes hold. When identity takes hold of a university and it's a very radical fashion, what you lose is the reflective spaces. So uh, this is my take and one felt increasingly being marginalized in the sense that what you are talking about is not shared by many except those who actually believe in universities being a reflexive place where you reflect. If reflective places are given away to the kind of um, politics that is happening outside, then you are in fact with them uh, for their reasons, not for your reason. This is my understanding of what is happening uh, today. And unfortunately, uh, in uh, in many sense, um, right, uh, particularly the Hindu communist section, they uh, they have completely mis misled in the sense their own people are sacrificing the university's autonomy, uh, and they will be the first victim later. Because if their autonomy goes, even they will lose their autonomy. The bad movements happening that also uh, delegitimize their own being JNU professor. The kind of respect they get was because of a, a reputation earned by the previous generation. 
but in the rush for making it a hindu university what they will lose out is their own reputation across the world so this is these are the kind of uh, kind of catch 22 situation which uh, jain began to find itself in the 1900s as we talking about jain what you're also getting is not just a reflection of what's happening within that institution and how it's uh, negotiating with the larger forces of change in the country you're also somewhere talking about the country itself because uh, the students are uh, really a microcosm of the country um, and if you had a very uh, a very articulate positioning of the of the right uh, was there also a resurgence of the left uh, in the in the late 80s early 90s you you have, that is assumed from the beginning that jno in some sense i was talking about was the reflection of the country as a whole nation so uh, if you have a have a complete breakdown of all norms and institutional norms and regulations over the last 6 years this is exactly what is happening at the, at the larger national level so in some sense jno jno mirrors what is happening so as 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 regards the question about what is happening the resurgence of the left the resurgence of the articulation of the identity you see while we talk about the resurgence of the left and jno being one uh, reflecting that you see the gradual uh, gradual confinement of the orthodox school uh, established left parties and they are completely getting oblivious in this part so what is very resurgent is extremely communal position extremely caste position extremely identity identity kind of position across the country now if that is a position uh, which happened for example by the multiculturalism uh, this revival in the 80s in us where the universities become a lot of uh, asians and latinos and they demanded multiculturalism you know one and finally uh, the reaction came in terms of trump you know they're talking about uh, the white supremacy here also if you see the the identity position will uh, we are around this question of um, majoritarian identity and you know and then reflect itself being a hindu identity by those who mobilize that so in that sense jno was reflecting and exactly what i, I was telling you the jno in this sense was uh, re- uh, kind of being seen as a reflecting those identity identitarian uh, uh, identitarian politics identitarian arguments uh, rather than showing the way beyond them or at uh, transcending those because any politics in india which so many varieties of religion and communities and identity it can it cannot despite many intellectual segment is saying that you have to accept identities and then go ahead but india in the way it has to be governed it has to be uh, led forward it has cannot go in a identity it has to have certain larger human human template and in that sense uh, secularism and jno in that sense in fact failed 
to provide that lead in say debate on secularism there are uh, scholars who actually were the mainstay of the secular debates in the panchandras and you know and the political science you have many people rajiv bhargav cp bambi you know a lot from different perspective but uh, it did not translate into even student politics though the secularism could not be uh, you have left position you have right position you have communal position but secular position was not articulated in the manner it could have uh they live secular lives uh, they are meeting each other so that is one but secularism uh, which could have been a kind of major debate in the indian politics it could not uh, emanate from jd similarly uh, um, even for mainstream parties like congress which hardly had any sympathizer among the students here but ultimately many of the jnu student union leader become the congress um, mps and all so in that sense uh, while jnu provided some of the left uh, trained left people for the larger congress mainstream politics i don't see them talking in terms of secularism and all uh, because one core template for india's to go forward is to be secular there's no gains in that Uh, so that is one many this could be other secondly on the cultural front uh, while the cultural activists literature and other people have actually led this movement for the against the hindu communal riots on other identity based politics jnu is not there in that sense so school of literature school of foreign languages they had, did not play that role they got confined within the university to fight political battles with each with the different um, forums but their role in that sense uh, that student and teacher both is not that as um, prominent as the cultural activist or an artist and all and i think this is across the world where university uh, creative people uh, are uh, not in that sense uh, as articulate as active as effective as those who come those who are outside the university because most of the breakthroughs in literature in music in things happens be outside university the third or sorry one third is uh, that is a cultural we are entering into what ts eliot has talked about wasteland india is fast approaching a cultural wasteland uh, and uh, and th- this the universities has a huge uh, blame to accept not just jnu but all other universities because the departments of arts and music and performance and all these um, including comparative religion you know very two or two departments have um, comparative religion for example banaras and vishwabharati but their contribution to the religious discourse in the country has been so abysmal uh, that uh, one feels sad so in those sense universities because they were thought to be the repository of post traditional modern knowledge system where all the indian uh, uh, experiences would be articulated and then uh, talked in universal term uh, if uh, and in the process the traditional forms uh, gradually where uh, traditional forms of knowledge disappeared over the last 200 years but they disappeared and they the university in the university and universities failed to reach any standard of that level and therefore what has happened is 
that uh, we are reaching where we have lost traditional excellence and where the traditional excellence could have been given a boost that is within the universities universities became a, just a meeting ground of professors and to become professors and students getting a phd degree nothing beyond that so even in that jnu could have led but it, it i don't think it became a, a very big cultural player so without in a country where cultural communal communal polarization is happening in the name of culture uh, we were not leaders in that we could not lead so if you are not leading if you are not contributing in that manner uh, you become increasingly marginalized in that debate so that's what uh, we have facing here uh, at this moment of time that's wonderful to hear uh, i'm just looking back and i'm want to take bring uh, you in touch again with um, rakesh butterwell the student uh, who enters jnu in 89 when uh, much of what you are describing now would have been uh, would have been very very different for you um, to encounter coming from where you were uh, which was a very highly european open um open world where uh, where you were involved in a uh, discussion on ideas on uh, and you came to jnu looking for more of that and yet you came into what by 89 was a fairly polarized um student community uh, if i can just remember that i think 89 was also when i first uh, went into jnu um to meet a friend and i still recall being uh, at ganga dhaba and i was just sitting there and someone just sat down and gave me this spiel about how stalin was the most misunderstood politician of all time and i think i was i was completely shell shocked i had never in my life met anybody who thought stalin was misunderstood uh but the very that the, the quality of the debate which was happening in there and this is 11 in the morning so most people were just waking up at jnu uh so jnu and i can't help but remember how much i envied all of you who were there you know you were involved in what seemed to be this amazing culture where debate was possible where people could violently disagree and then just go back to drinking chai um and yet from what you say that was not uh, what was happening there was some some something much more uh, insidious something much more uh, vacuous happening at the same time uh, no i was talking about the 90s and onwards uh, 89 mm-hmm. uh, when you came must have been different because a lot of things in india changed in the 90s primarily and this is uh, when i i talked about this problems that jnu faced it is also a contribution of jnu to help me interrogate or reflect on its internal being an internal critique you know you rarely find an internal critique in other universities nobody in bangalore will talk about why the bangalore university declined you know <laughs> so in the manner that i was talking about where we lack so this even in this appraisal of jnu and its failure to catch up something there is a point of a perspective how how to take it further so that is what 
uh, was learned during those this period being a student. So what you talk about in the 89 as a student, you know, my experience as a student, I'll tell you, um, in a very um, different fa- fashion than I came to JNU, I was given um, my teacher, history teacher, one of my history teachers, um, who happens to be the CBI director, maybe has become a director or not now, Rakesh Asthana. Just imagine, um, who's Gujarat Kader um, person hmm. watching news. He was, uh, he taught me in the last semester. So he gave me a reference to one of his classmates who was in JNU. So I met absolutely decent. I haven't met a more decent gentleman in my life. I met him and became friends. He was senior, you know, uh, and then after two years, he went to Cambridge. He's a, and one never knew that he was in SFI or CPIM. And he gradually talking to him. We never talked about uh, politics and all. Gradually, one become part of a political formation. Because this person was so decent, so educated, so academic, that I didn't feel the absence of any uh, anything. That I, it was just a continuation of what I was. So this was JNU. You had enormous amount number of people uh, from uh, very good uh, institution. Also people from different um, institution from across the country. Also people from absolute villages. And you, what Jane taught me is to live with each one of them on individual level. So that is a training that I think my parents had given me, but since Avias had not given me in that sense, but Jane gave me. And you accept everyone on their face value, and then, uh, then you have whatever politics you have. So my roommate became one of the leading ABVP and heads. The person who, with whom I shared my room for the first uh, week is now the vice president of BJP Bihar. And he was a college mate and he came here. He was doing, uh, a, he was not even an ABVP, ABVP was not even there. The person who was, uh, again, my my host, my senior in college and came here and I spent, he took me to the admission center. He's now the general president of, uh, general secretary of uh, uh, BJP in Bihar, and he was a hardcore SFR. So, you see, you met these people on the personal terms, and personal and political were neither conflicting. You could debate, you could discuss. Teachers were respected, and yet you knew um, how different schools work, how different you. That is, I think, uh, what my interaction with academic staff, college teachers had given me is that that's the normal university. My position, even today in my book, the underlying current is that JNU is a normal university. What happened to other universities in the country has become abnormal. So in that abnormal situation, it has been propagated that JNU is an abnormal university. Because if you accept JNU's normalcy, normalcy, then you have to give this normal situation to your universities in different regions and centers, which they were there in the 50s and 60s. Isn't it? So therefore, it is in the vested interest of many to reduce JNU to being a, and including people in JNU, it, it becomes a vested interest in some sort to say this is an abnormal university. 
this is an elite university this is a, this university this is a poor man's university this is this no jnu is what an university should be Don't, yes huh and this is what this my entire focus of the book is that this is what a university should be you know uh, when a new university was set up in um, not maratwada the vice chancellor who was selected i was reading the memoir he heard that there's a nawab in hyderabad he's selling his library so he goes personally there and he buys the books and transport them in the trucks to the university hmm. now this is how universities were built across the country the when the first um, university came up in north karnataka that is um, dharwad university karnataka university dharwad the first vice chancellor pavate in 1949 recruits people from across the country you know main very big names in the future pn madan hmm. or उटरी they get people to you know any graduate from oxford would land up teaching in our voltaire uh, so you have hiran mukherji english you have s gopal you have radhakrishna everyone comes and teaches in voltaire hmm? this is what university should be imagine today when if suppose i want to teach in any of the state university it's not that um, I, i don't want i i i want but it's it's next to impossible to get appointed in any of the state university despite the fact of lack of appointment lack of culture lack of quality because we have fortified those universities and ugc and central government is further fortifying universities through different means so in that sense jnu 89 70s 890s even till today was a is a normal university now it is reduced it's becoming increasingly become an abnormal university by attacking it for being abnormal <laughs> for being normal yeah being normal being normal hmm. you go to anywhere how, how harvard is not a abnormal university is a normal university so hyderabad osmania for example produce uh, leaders for the left leaders for the congress leaders for the uh, bjp leaders from leaders for cinema leaders from literature everyone comes from the university because these are the centers of learning so perspectival differences will also come if jnu jnu has produced yesterday i was reading the abbp vice president or general secretary is now a lady from jnu now it could be just one one uh, political ploy but you can see if yeah, they have produced um, uh, karat and sitaram yachuri they have also produced abbp leader as i was mentioning you the bjp president and vice president in bihar Uh, president and uh, vice president is from jnu and not long back there was student here similarly how it should be right i mean every university will have to uh, will have young people who come in and who find themselves university exactly. is a place to find yourself exactly. uh, ideologically professionally this is a place where you you know the confusion of uh, of uh, being a teenager turns you into something more than that you know you do ideally you should not you should be able to leave university less confused than when you came in not sure that actually happens but that's basically what it's supposed to do 
so if I can then say that when I look, when I try and understand from what you're sharing with me uh, and the listeners, the the whole idea of JNU when it came in, it's actually remained very true to its ethos, to the big ideas with which it was set up. So as we now move into this century, uh, you know, there's this whole campaign and that actually was what triggered this conversation also is a campaign which seems to be gaining ground um, to rename the university, uh, change the name from Nehru to Subhash Chandra Bose. And I was actually thinking that if somebody had come up with that uh, name uh, of setting up a university in Delhi uh, based on Bose's name, the first person who would have uh, endorsed that and probably contributed towards it would have been Nehru. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Nehru would probably have uh, been very violently opposed to the idea of naming a university after him. He did not approve of this. You see, the problem is uh, the ruling dispensation is the BJP, but more than BJP, RSS, uh, in many sense, does not have any original idea of anything. Yes. So that becomes a bane for them. So they are, I think, um, if any institution can be um, sued for plagiarism, it should be these organizations in that sense. And the second is, uh, I uh, generally call um, RSS as a poem. Sing very sweet in Latin, but it always looks for a cow's, uh, crow's nest to hatch its eggs. So they either the 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 structural problem, uh, which is not a problem for them, but they're, they're now facing a problem. Structural problem for RSS has been that uh, you have defined a territorial nationalism uh, and uh, everyone being Hindu in that territory. Yeah. Now, in that sense, uh, it is saying something obvious. So. No, it's obvious. Uh, and you trying to make very big, big things about an obvious thing. You know, and make that obvious a political thing. Now, uh, in making that political, you have to say that Muslims are not part of this country because they're Pitra Bhumi or Puni Bhumi is outside, Christians are outside. So then you, uh, to make that obvious thing uh, political, you have to discount many people, many institutions. That is why. Now, in the process, you can see this is very anti-knowledge formation because everything is asserted. Because assertion and claims and assertions are um, not allowed. It's a logical uh, debating perspective, a different logical perspective coming to Pramana or all these These are not accepted. It is just asserted, and you have to accept this. The whole politics is to accept the asserted claims. Now, this is an anti-knowledge perspective. So, anti-knowledge perspective cannot develop uh, in Versailles. You know, uh, when in, uh, even the medieval Christian monasteries, which gradually evolved into university, were also experimenting. People were writing books. People, you know, all these medieval uh, monasteries, 
Saint yeah. Augustine, so everyone, you know, Saint Aquinas, developed huge and huge and huge uh, philosophical core purpose. Now here, an organization which is asking for changing the entire perspective of a one billion people have not produced a single worthwhile philosophical text. They harp on some philosophical texts which are not philosophical texts. So there's Archer, um, uh, Vishnu Shastri's. Um, uh, Chanakya's Arthashastra is not a philosophical text, so to say. It is a text of detailing what was there in the Mauryan Empire and some other rules and methods of governing. So, therefore, what we are looking at as, as therefore, I was talking about, we are entering into a cultural wasteland. The monasteries which Europe had developed in the Buddhist countries, the monasteries developed a huge corpus of intellectual and academic. That's why we have largest number of texts from Buddhist monasteries. Similarly, when the Christian monasteries and Christian um, Catholic or Protestant monasteries gradually evolve into universities, they actually shared many of their prescriptive asserted claims and in fact had to accept larger intellectual universe. If you remember, Shelley was um, ousted from his university, I think Oxford, because of his blasphemous views. And the same university, Oxford, now can have philosophers from across. uh, uh, They're leading philosophers in England, uh, in fact, Oxford and Cambridge, which were till uh, 200 years back, the bastion of uh, Protestant religion. Uh, is a Kantian philosopher, Conor uh, Onoda O'Neill, who, who would be not accepted. The bastion of Protestant, uh, uh, in fact, one of the bastions, one of the core uh, philosophical uh, template of the University of Notre Dame, uh, which is in uh, India, uh, US, uh, India, I think. Uh, University of Notre Dame is a Catholic university and it, it avows, it claims Catholic University on the website. But it publishes one of the best journals of formal logic in the world. Publishing, getting published in formal logic is almost one article is almost like you become a professor or any other. In that sense, they, they are religious, in true sense, religious universities in the sense they try and nurture the religious ideas in a philosophical term but they go beyond it and then they become university in that sense here we are trying to assert a political and religious claim on a completely non-knowledge platform you recruit the worst people of the world who would create anything of that sort neither they are religious nor they are intellectual so as a result we are and it is not just the RSS and Daniel. Earlier, earlier for political formations in the country have done and destroyed their own universities in the name of caste, for example. But in the caste, at least there's some space for evolving those because you can always uh, caste you keep on your sleeves, but you can always work on economy. Caste and economy not not necessarily contradictory to each other. Similarly, you could work on philosophy. But when you have this claim that you have to you have to testify, justify this claim of being superior and you have to be a bishop guru and all these things, it is very anti-knowledge. And therefore, the universities cannot grow. And therefore, it won't know. It won't grow. In a knowledge, knowledge society, you don't have any place in that sense. If you, uh, if your, your existence is uh, rationalized for uh, asserting something 
which uh, is clean. No, <laughs> that is where we are. We are leading gradually ourselves to. You therefore you take a by route and say we are technologically superior, but that's neither here nor there. Even North Korea has nuclear missiles, but do we respect North North Korea for being a knowledge society? No, just like that. Hmm. I, I get where you're coming from on this. I'm also trying to get a sense of as we uh, start looking at this at uh, now contextualizing JNU, uh, not just within the state system and uh, within this, but in in terms of you know the larger understanding of knowledge production, which technology has changed so dramatically. Um, when you were talking about your time at the staff college and teaching and uh, being able to turn people who were perhaps uh, not as committed to the whole profession of teaching, of sharing, uh, and con- converting them into, uh, into evangelists uh, for teaching. Uh, have you seen a change in how technology has uh, changed the teaching learning process within higher education, even in a place like JNU, which was already quite liberal and was open to uh, newer ideas. But has that made a fundamental difference as many people are now talking about? You see, uh, India, JNU cannot be Harvard. For many reasons. It cannot be Oxford for many reasons. Uh, universities by and large are implanted institutions in this land and it is over the last 100-150 years we are trying to naturalize it in in that process Jainu's contribution could have been that it naturalized that was a reaction against universities everywhere by the society Uh, last week one of my students in Bihar was conducting an examination and he almost crying he went new he says everyone came with the books and puppies and all to cheat so it was, cheating. it was not cheating it was just I have to allow everything so in this sense universities uh, the idea of this modern institution was uh, different uh, and we are trying to cross it. So, and we cannot be Harvard because we don't have that resources and we cannot have that resource whichever however way uh, way we want to uh, for a large number of people uh, Harvard for example has 30,000 more undergraduate students can we have 30,000 students in Jane or any big universities in the country in that kind of structure not the way you know dispersed affiliated college stuff. we are not but therefore the Jane the JNU model was and that's a unique model you, you can't give them resources give them freedom and this is where uh, our thing lay all our great things happened even Kalajar Molecule because we were given freedom to experiment you know, and that's why the national movement the scientists became the main carrier of nationalist ideas in the national movement they wanted freedom freedom for the country freedom for themselves to experiment they were not uh, in that sense JNU was the kind of freedom that you got. Now, does technology today gives you that freedom? Technology has enormous potential. And as uh, it, it is evident, the way we are talking, I can share my experience with you. And just after this meeting, I'll have a meeting with two people from Kerala, um, Calcutta, 
about uh, text in philosophy so you know this is facilitated but this facilitation is happening at a cost where people first generation literate and all those who to come in fact our main the jnu model and not just jnu model in india uh, the only model that could give this freedom uh, a value to people when you talk face to face with because you know them uh, you know their background you know you try to know try to understand each other india we the only thing we lack is we have prejudice against each one of us without knowing because india is a country of prejudices without knowledge so the whole effort is to know each other how one lives you know i when i took my children for uh, a school admission and when i go to their ptm meeting you know i used to feel sad because i realized very soon that my children if suppose they want to write novels and literature uh, they will not have the uh, understanding experience of a a a, a lower division of clerks children sitting with them what is their happiness ah um the family, what time they are happy what this is a very class based social structure coming up in the schooling where the public schools where we went we had all kinds of friends even today uh, ranging from uh, you can understand and therefore your experiences is wide and india is a country of wide varieties of the rich poor that is one uh, axis but there are so many other axes and therefore genuine experience or experience of universities across the country has to be experiential experience because universities as andre pete had written so well that is the only exit route for us to modernity from our traditional sectarian caste based rule based society the universities were the roots as film as bombay film used to show the rail the train was to the career of um, individuals from villages and caste ridden society to bombay terminal which was a, a, a heaven for modern existence when you lose your sectarian identity and become part of the universe in that sense universities in india the colleges are still the only avenues for modern universal existence when you learn about universal values uh, transcending your In that sense, therefore, technology does not give you vicariously strides to give, but in the face-to-face interaction, it will rather entrench the isolations that are already there. Class isolations are happening. Uh, age isolation is happening. Uh, when you meet people on the road you know for example i am a big critic of this gated society when you go to a society which is not gated for example you are living in one of the societies there you have in the morning some bhikari will come a beggar will come sometime later a fakir will come sometime later a bhupia will come with a snake in his uh, in his tappa and you know a dog will come and sit next to your door any dog all kinds of people coming in now you this is the way we all socialize into diversity now in a gated society for example nobody comes to so your children get to know no extra than just you and everybody else is a stranger whom 
they are asked to avoid opening the door to. So in that sense, if you uh, make this te technology in this sense, and not just um, this uh, new technology of interacting, but you know, getting your journals, books, so library, similarly technology of calling food to your room, then students have ceased to become interested in the quality of food in the hostel because if the food is bad that day, they'll order something from outside and eat. Rather than sitting together like we used to sit in GBM and ask the cook and the manager and the secretary why the food was so bad. This is the way the democratic society actually take, took care of everyone else. Today with technology, today with much more resources, we actually are surrendering our spaces, our larger social spaces. Uh, very few JNU professors actually visit library. You know, we have some of them we used to visit regularly, and we were bemoaning the fact that JNU's library system is collapsing ten years back. We, we used to make complaints, we used to, but since technology has made people uh, available the JNU uh, through remote access, um, they lost the. Uh, Brought. They don't go physically and JNU library has become a dump in that sense. And successive librarians came, they made their personal career, personal uh, advantages and left the library to almost a dump, which was the, one of the best research libraries in South Asia, I would say. But if you go today, it's almost a dump except the, the entrance has been renovated and, you know, it looks like one of the uh, place. But beyond that, yeah, and the students also want only the computer connection. They don't go to the shelf, they don't go to the dump yard, the journals are languishing, they're destroyed. So my campaign has been with librarians and all that please take care of that, but nobody. Similarly, the new technologies of governance, for example, giving a clean jo cleaning job to outsource people. You know, what do they do? And I had intervened quite a lot. Uh, they would uh, clean the, say, dusting. Dusting because they are the L1. We are Republic of L1, means the lowest tender. So this lowest tender, they, they put the staff to clean the journals, which are old volume, Rexin-bound volume. So they clean with wet cloth. And within a year, those Rexin-bound volumes are tottering. You know? So this, I have been to the last 10 years regularly. Don't do this because these people who are coming at 8,000 rupees per month has no interest, no commitment to the books. Earlier staff, if you have permanent staff of some sort, they have a permanent interest in those journals and volumes and all. They look it's after them like babies. Baby. And now JNU library, the back volume and the earlier librarian has dumped them in a in a dusty place where the windows have been broken for last last decade or so. Nobody knows. Library is the last concern. And this I link with the new technologies of governance. One is computer. So it is huge. Now, no university, I spend my time in many universities, particularly Japan, which is the most technologically advanced, more than even American universities. And the way they took care of the physical books is amazing, amazing. Technology is to support the physical books rather than the other way around. And it is here, the other way, technology is destroying the physical books. Now, what it ultimately leading is, and this is very evident to me, and I want to right on this in the uh, pandemic period everybody is depending on the remote access and where the j store and project and all these things are all western knowledge so a government which talks about super supervising an eastern knowledge and indian knowledge to become the vishwa guru is actually facilitating 
by uh, in fact you know uh, bringing a completely uh, borrowed learning system learning you know i i was reading an article uh, which talks about you know there was a famine in the uh, sometime in um, sometime in the uh, i think uh, early ancient period and this article is called some reflections on the loss of learning and its retrieval in the wake of 12 years drought in northern india there the drought and uh-huh. books were lost mm. and how to retrieve now what is happening is that we are losing because in the physical touch with day to day classroom this yeah. is where the knowledge was created now that knowledge is not being created because of the technology even the students even before pandemic uh, were trying f- not to come to the st- and get the articles and journal from the online but in a country where most of the knowledge is not on online and we learn every day hmm. how is it that we can create a, a large knowledge society for for example if you lose your way and looking for some residence in any delhi locality or bombay or locality you ask the address to the local gobi or local feriwala who is sitting there and you you quite often wonder about the way they tell you that the, the, the address that you are looking for is the first left turn and the third house of the right no this is called uh, existed knowledge you know that social knowledge and this is where we have to harness for making larger knowledge claim rather than we are doing the other way around we are borrowing from journals which are digitized writing cut and paste papers and then saying something which actually doesn't have any, uh, much uh, to take us forward that's it's such an original way of thinking about it because i think for me and for many of us from my generation and uh, uh the physical book is uh, more than just a book it was a friend it was uh, it was a companion in uh, good times and certainly and even more in not such uh, such good ones so the library and especially i still remember the jnu library uh, was a one time i think i completely uh, questioned everything about my decision to not take that uh, admission in uh, for french uh without even actually having come to the university you know the one time i truly truly re- regretted that because the jnu library is such an amazing place i mean there's almost nothing which is not there and it's open 24 hours i've never even heard of such a thing when i think back to that you know the, the, the that is the normal of, uh, that should be the normal university yeah it isn't <laughs> it's really not i think uh, wherever i study it's always always and uh, there been times when a bell will ring you know when you're in the middle of writing something and the bell will ring and you almost like you almost like jump out you lose one of your lives if it's possible rejection you won't believe i was in japan for uh, teaching there and mm. in that tokyo university library system i used to carry a suitcase to stroller and i could borrow 20 books each from seven libraries in that system so i used to come back uh, having 60 70 books almost every week you know that is a fun going to the rack or even not to the, and every book or even on india 
the here and the thing it is not about technology and money it is how you treat your knowledge because from the beginning for example the right wing curse indian knowledge system coming up the rich thought that you know it is their privilege so they could send their children abroad and they will bring knowledge from abroad the poor had to be trained into understanding uh, and the university was the only way the hindu communal thought that everything rested in the vedas and so therefore uh, nothing to be learned and this is still the basic template of their journey and therefore this anti poor anti others you know learning something uh, has has cost us so well, so dearly almost the whole library system in the country is in is in dump is in slum uh, uh, the previous the and i would credit the left and marxist scholars of the uh 50s and 60s day by publishing in the indian publishing houses people's book houses and all kind of rawats and uh, they have promoted those publishers and good publishing india is the only third world country a ex colonial country which also produces its own textbook by berating the textbooks by banning them by attacking them for being secular and all these thing what the hindu communals have done is to allow the the global conglomerate textbook publishing to enter indian market because now with we berating our own intellectuals only intellectuals we will be valorizing uh, will be the the publishers publishing from abroad so these are the nuances of uh, where we are at, as a modern society That's right. Really very very amazing because I think that that's part of what very few people seem to even realize is that when we are shortening research periods uh when we're saying that books need to be written within 18 months to years you need to finish a PhD uh you actually are uh, undermining the quality of research which can come out and uh, you're again turning us into case studies in other people's books you know so we do the research we do the uh, data collection and someone else does the analysis so we literally are going back into uh, not so much macaulay putras but actually macaulay slaves again because we become their clerks you know that old uh, be going back into that form of knowledge production if we continue on this road on this road yes you're right absolutely we have already i don't know how we might have already moved to that road let's see no it's, it's very very uh, it's wonderful talking to you and uh, i could do this for like another 5 hours and not uh, not at all uh, feel that uh, feel it a stretch uh, but i think we will conclude here today and i'm so looking forward to doing this with your other book uh, which i think should be coming really? out very soon on modern school i think really? that would be the one where we can use that to also begin a discussion on elitism within school education something on which uh, many of us have uh, experienced uh, first hand i think that would be wonderful thank you thank so you. much rakesh thank you vijay thank you this podcast is a labor of love it would not have been possible without the support of fellow travelers arvind ramamurthy my go to person for all things technical the mother and son team of chaya and vishwak pandey artist 
the cover art and the sound is part of their doing and sound engineer Ratna Sambhava he makes the impossible possible and Sujata Raghavan the MC on this episode join us next time for another episode of Baroque Conversations thank you for listening in